We've got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Robbo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and I am your host, and I'm joined as always by the tiny child inside of me reminding me that I won't be pushed around by other people ever again, Scott Daly. <laughs> this is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bill's world of giant fucking laser guns, a, a truly excessive amount of dildos, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, Arc 18 Radiation concludes with chapters 18.10 and 18.z, and then Arc 19 Infrared begins with chapters 19.1. First, Victoria gives a rousing speech all about Operation Human Shield, and it works. Over 5,000 people agree to Zoolander their way into a shard computer and, like, bang on it and stuff. (laughs) Uh, Hooray. We then dive into the heads of some of the Titans, and it's not at all troubling in there. Then we cut back to Victoria, who continues throwing her gun around like it's some sort of penis metaphor. Matt, what did you think of these three chapters? Uh, I I think I liked them. I don't really remember. It's Um, been so long. It's been so long. It's been like two weeks. And um, yeah, they were great. I mean, we get to cover an interlude and we get to cover a first arc chapter Mm -hmm. um, in, in one episode. So um, it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting. And I think there's going to be a lot of different angles on things, but of course, as always, I think there's a lot of, um, underlying stuff that knits together all the ideas and there's going to be some through lines that we find. Yeah. I'm not going to be surprised if we end up spending most of our time on the interlude chapter this week. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there and there's a lot of stuff that I think helps clarify, uh, what the Titans are and what's going on there and stuff that really, for me, helped cement like how I handled them in a way that I think I was treating them incorrectly before. And now I feel like I've got a handle on them. Good point. Yeah. I think that was valuable. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, some quick uh, announcements before we start. Sure. Uh, the doof the right thing, uh, fiction writing contest remains open. We have received one count of one submission uh, at this point. It, it takes, takes 30 minutes to write these folks. Just write it. <laughs> Send it to us. <laughs> well, they still have, uh, I believe, 16 days, right? It's the 17th is the final day of the contest. I, I, do, I shouldn't have said that without knowing for sure. I'm like 90 percent sure that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if if it's not, then, you know, everyone should go check on the website. Yeah. So I assume like our uh, our art contest, everyone's just going to wait till the very last day to submit those, um, which is fine. I would do the same thing if I was submitting to this contest. But I mean, I, I it's great. Like if you're a writer out there and you want to practice writing and maybe get some money for it, uh, participate in this contest. We love doing these contests. And I'm I the one submission we did get, I already read and I liked it. So spoilers, I guess. Currently, I, that one's winning. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> voting in the contest, so I can I can be as biased as I want. And uh, my favorite submission is the one that we've gotten. So all right. So there's another announcement. Uh, Scott, do you want to cover this one? Yeah. So we just wanted to and we're going to beat this drum um, basically every week until March uh, because our friends over at Deep Impact are preparing to finish up that book. They have two months to go almost to the day 
um, before they're done with Pact, and they are celebrating that by doing a 24-hour live stream event. Uh, it's going to be a charity live stream that they're doing. I, I totally forgot the name of the charity, but we're going to link to uh, they they put together a whole video explaining what that is going to be. So we're going to link to that in our show notes, and that's going to stay in our show notes until March 6th, with is which is the day of the 24-hour live stream. Um, it, it's going to be ridiculous. It's going to be a lot of fun. Matt and I will be joining them. I am. Uh, desperately trying to finish Pact before that date. I'm so ridiculously behind, but I read a whole arc over the last two days, so that's more than I've done in a long time. Um, but it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be for charity, and uh, we hope uh, you guys will join them and us for that, and we're going to be really pushing that the next few months. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that they are planning to do like a ritual or something, so... Um, oh, they're going to summon some... Oh, great. That's yeah. not... Great. Um, so look forward to that. That's yeah. going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like one, <laughs> just imagining like death on live stream and what <laughs> you and I uh, would do sitting there. We're like, uh, guys. Uh-huh. Yeah. Got yeah. Elliot. It's, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> All right, Scott, let's get into these chapters. Let's do it. We begin with 18.10, which is the last chapter, chapter proper of radiation before the interlude. Of course, uh, our team extremely battle worn and weary, Awaits the warden's approval of plan Storm the Gates of Hell. <laughs> Kinsey has made cool new costume modifying projectors for everybody, which makes their costumes look just a little bit more awesome. Yeah, I, I, I have a lot to talk about in this opening. Uh, I, like we kind of open up on a hurry up and wait moment, right? Like as hours have gone by, rain is about to go into the dream and our team uh, is, as Victoria puts it in the opening line of the chapter, impatient. Because they like it's been leading towards this moment, but now they're just in this like lull before everything happens. And I really like the focus on the costumes here, because as you said, Kenzie has brought out these costume enhancement devices that just make all their costumes look cooler. Um, but on top of that, we also see Victoria has in this lull time gone to work on her damage costume because shortcut was nice enough to point out to her that her costume needed some repairing. Thanks shortcut. That was very kind of you. Um, and <laughs> so she spends, uh, some of this time working on her costume. And, and the interesting part about that to me is she's kind of filed off some of the rough broken edges. She's, she's taken an animal grooming brush to clear the dust off, which has some implications. Um, but the most fascinating visual to me is where when she's attempting to straighten one of the tines on her shoulder armor, uh, she accidentally snaps it off. And of course, we have to remember that the tines were textually to Victoria, like a metaphor for the many limitedness of the wretch. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's some some ominous foreshadowing of what's to come when one of those limbs gets snapped off, S snapped off and removed, broken off. Yeah, I like yeah. that a lot. That's really cool. You know, I think it's something we've talked about a bit before, but it, I, one thing I really like about parahumans, and I think Ward in particular, is this idea that while Bo takes all of the tropes of a genre, in this in this case, costumes um, being, a, being a standard trope of superheroes, and really kind of puts a spotlight on it, explores what does it mean, what does it matter to have costumes? It's sure. not just a set dressing, right? It's it's a way of saying things about the character, where they are, where their head is at, what's happened in the story. And yeah, so we've got these damaged, you know, torn up costumes that they are brushing down and then putting a projector over to basically hide the damage. Yeah. Um, and I think that's meant to sort of convey this idea that they're putting a brave face forward. Um, but maybe underneath that brave face, everybody's a little bit um, 
the worse for wear. Yeah. And one of the things that we see that Kenzie's tech does is kind of like accentuate the lighter parts of the costume, right? Like Victoria's mm-hmm. glows gold a little bit. Um, uh, I think Capricorn's glows, whatever color, which brother happens to be at the time. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's accentuating the lighter parts, which also kind of has a, a an added effect of maybe making the shadows a bit more shadowy. Um, which is interesting. And I, and I think that we'll see that motif repeat again in chapter 19.1 where Victoria needs night vision and the night vision Kenzie gives her maybe is part and parcel of the technology that she used here because it like accentuates the bright parts, uh, but also makes the dark parts darker. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot because it reminded me of sort of the superhero um uh, either comic book or film really tendency to have really exaggerated hyper real colors it you know whichever medium you're, you're you're talking about you never really see the colors of superhero um fiction in real life and yeah. here they're literally saying yeah uh they have these projectors that are making it so that <laughs> so that like light light behaves unrealistically on her costume for example yeah i, I love how fun. i love how it's not just it's not even like her costume's glowing it's like sunlight is hitting it that's the the effect that's been made here sunlight from an out of sight source was falling on it which yeah. is this a very specific image that is not like just like when you think of glow you think of like gl- the the source of the glow being the piece on the costume itself mm-hmm. but that's not quite what is happening here it's really i like it a lot yeah me too um we also introduced the fact here that kenzie has like casually almost uh, incidentally made a device that is preserved between the Capricorn swaps, mm-hmm. which is a huge deal. And Tristan's like, holy shit. And yeah. Kenzie's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a good laugh for me when, uh, sure. uh, when, when she like walks away in the middle of him talking to her and he's like, we'll, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like a huge deal. Like yeah. something's preserved. He sticks something to the armor and it's preserved between swaps. That's game changing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I enjoyed the part where Kenzie said she made one for herself, but it requires a backpack. And my brain is just like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> like everyone else is just a tiny little pin that they put like the either magnet onto their costume or clip on or something like that. But hers is like, no, I need a backpack. And I'm like, what? What? What is it like for a battery? <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty interesting how in the background of this chapter, uh, no, this arc rather, Kenzie has been like feverishly working on something in the in the workshop. Sure. And I don't think we really know what it is because I don't think it was just these projector things because these are like cool, but I don't like they're not like combat necessary. Sure. Maybe they do something else that we don't realize. So maybe this is what she was building and they just have some other function that we don't know about. But but like. I feel like she must have been working on something big and important that we're just not privy to yet. Yeah. And I think that would be very on brand for Kenzie where like she just wouldn't tell you that Mm -hmm. like and it's not even lying. It's just like like we've talked about so much like a lie of omission where she just doesn't mention that. But I mean, it it does it does say that um, that she's like she's tinkered at this point in the story. It's like I've tinkered just about everything I can at this point, um, which is that's a lot. There's a lot there (laughs) possibly. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Kenzie has quote unquote accidentally made one for Swan Song as well, mm-hmm. which prompts Victoria to think that she wants to give Kenzie a hug, but she can't. Yeah. Which is really heartbreaking. I, I mentioned this on my live read when I read this part though, that the, the what this, the effect this had on me was like a remind an in-story reminder of the fact that Swan Song's death was like a week ago. 
um, like, cause for us, the reader, it's been months and months. Right. But for these characters, it's been literally a week, uh, maybe like a week and a day at this point. Um, and, and I think it just serves as a reminder that Swansong has been not, has not been out of these people's lives for that long. They are still actively mourning her. They're still actively missing her. And, and like this, this thing of, I was rushing to make something and I just counted this person as part of the team without really thinking about it is absolutely something that I could find believable and devastating. Yeah, it becomes much sadder, right? Um, and, sure. and I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that it was that recently because I I almost just kind of felt like Kenzie was not lying because I don't think she lies that way, but maybe exaggerating, kind of bending the truth when she said she forgot, like yeah. like like maybe she just sentimentally wanted to make one for Swan Song, but now that you remind me that it was so recent, I'm like, oh, I can totally believe that she was just in the in the zone and she made one for all of her teammates and then realized, oh, this person's dead. Um, yeah, I can I can 100 yeah. percent believe that. I also was there where there with you, though, where I was like, was this an accident? Like, I think to me, there's a potential that she just made it for Damsel and she was kind of using the I accidentally made one for smoke for Swan Song as a smoke screen. Yeah, possible, possible, um, it, very possible. But I, I can't see it as a possibility of just like in the middle of busy tinkering, just forgot that that person isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um I think I think when I've not I've been lucky enough to not lose a lot of people close to me, but I definitely have had moments where like grandparents have passed away and then you just have moments where you like forget that you just forgot. It's so recent. It's so new. It's you just forget. Um, And so I I think that's a very believable thing that could happen. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's also super sad when that happens. Sure. Yeah. So she also gives one of these uh, little little pins to Natalie and she explains swiping right makes you blur. And swiping left permanently blinds everybody around you. So cool. <laughs> don't, don't accidentally do that. There's a there's a Tinder joke in there. Um, <laughs> I, I do. I, I love that she makes one for Natalie, though. Right. Like th- there's been this back and forth question, at least in the mind of our protagonist, uh, whether or not Natalie was a member of this team or rather not a question, just something she sometimes says, yes, absolutely. Natalie is a member of this team. And then sometimes she doesn't include her in that list at all. But I think this to me shows that Kenzie absolutely considers her as part of the team and and is is going to make her something. Um, And the casual nature of this horribly consequential tool is really, really funny. And I, I, I took that idea and I thought about, well, this is kind of what's happening now, right? Like this idea of we have these not like we have these capes that are so used to these stakes, so used to life and death, so used to like having this immense power in their hands that if they if they don't use it correctly or they make a mistake with it, people could die. Um, and now they've just given that power to a non cape. And that's kind of what they're doing in general inviting these humans into this battle and we're giving giving them stakes giving them agency in this ongoing fight they're bringing them into that world Mm -hmm. yeah um i I think that's absolutely right i mean i victoria's already multiple times said and this is finally the day that natalie joined breakthrough but i I feel like (laughs) i feel like uh at this point now that i feel like the the humans are going to play such a pivotal role in saving the world this time around hopefully uh yeah. that it'll be it, w- it would be rather um short-sighted at first to deny that humans can be important yeah yeah so. and I, the the clip here is an owl um which i liked as well because we were talking last week about what natalie's role in the group was um and the the wise one 
the wise owl is, is a fitting role, I think, mm-hmm. or, or at least to me reflects a level of respect coming from Kenzie um, that she thinks owl like there's there's specific connotations there. And I like yeah. that. An owl provides perspective on things. Indeed. Indeed. Sure. I like it. So they get the preliminary go-ahead from the wardens to broadcast their message, and they go outside for a better backdrop because this is the kind of thing that that, uh, they think about. And then Victoria gives her address to the citizens of Gimel. I I love the detail here that that what you point out there is that Victoria is so aware that she's just like, no, we shouldn't do it in here. Like, we should do it out there. We'll see how we're living just as rough as they are. They'll see the people in the background. They'll see the the tents and the fire. And it's just like she's very aware of optics. Mm. Um, and, and you can call that a carolism. I think that's absolutely where she got it. But it remains true that Victoria is able to play this particular part of the Cape game, if you want to call it that, pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think like her interest in kind of uh, uh, doing the PR for this was 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 cool and very. I mean, just realistic and just good good writing since it's continuous with what we understand of their characters throughout the story. So, sure. Yeah. Uh, and I think Victoria's speech also is is great. It's well written. It's it's um, it's moving where it needs to be. And uh, it's just a great character moment, I think. I, I, I love the notes describing how she pauses st- uh, strategically to strike certain notes, th- details like that. Yeah, I think she nails the speech. And I agree with you. The writing here is just fantastic. It's, it's, it's one of those naturally tense moments where you're extremely nervous for the person whose head you're in. Like you, you almost like live vicariously through them in this moment and are like, oh, my God, this is such a big deal. Don't 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 screw this up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because like at this point, I was still not sure about this whole plan of hers. Like I think when we talked about a couple weeks ago, I was like, is this a good plan? I don't know about this. But even if I wasn't on board for the plan, I wanted her to succeed here. And and you're kind of swept up in the moment. I I think the, the writing really, really nails the momentousness of this speech. And I think you're absolutely right that the way it does that is through this kind of structure of big chunk of of dialogue intersected by victoria victoria giving a note to herself pause here pause for emphasis uh, make sure you're standing up straight that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and it does that it repeats that throughout there i think there are four big chunks of dialogue throughout the speech and each one is cut with this uh this internal narrative uh coaching to herself can i just zoom out and say like what a what a good sign of, of good storytelling it is that, that we really can't say at this point, whether um, her plan is a good one or a bad one. <laughs> like, b- because you're exactly right that we're nervous the whole time. Like, Oh, this could be, this could be a great hero moment or this could be just the worst idea ever. And it could be a total yeah. disaster and, and she would feel horrible and guilty about it. And and we don't really know because while though he doesn't really fall into easy, predictable patterns of like, it's always going to be awesome. The heroes are going, to, are going to win. And also it's not, it's not just always going to be a shit show. Like, like the, the heroes do get wins and they're, they're kind of, they're kind of easy to forget about because the, the, the heroes have to fight hard to get their wins. Sure. Um, but it's, I just think it's, I just think it's cool because in a lot of, I feel like a lot of movies these days, you just kind of, you're never, you're never really worried. You're like, ah, no, they're, they're going to win. I, I know what kind of movie <laughs> I'm watching, but I don't really know what kind of story I'm reading. Sure. Fundamentally, yeah. like we won't know until it's over and that's good. And that's good storytelling. Well, and I think the, the reason it works is because 
wild bow almost kind of nests the stakes a little bit because mm-hmm. like there's the broad global stakes of is this plan going to work is this the way they win um and there's a lot of consequences for that but then you can you can shrink it down to the the personal like intimate stakes here are is victoria going to be disappointed or uh or surprised by the capacity of humanity right like there's mm. this idea like victoria has been going back and forth about her opinion on on humanity through a lot of this book and this is a moment where she's really rolling the dice on people and 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 you're like is she going to be disappointed or is she going to see them and and start to see people for what for what they can be and you don't know and and that adds to the tension of the scene right because especially not 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 the speech itself but a wild bow brilliantly like allows the after effects the slow trickle of people to play out for a long time there's there's a pretty sizable chunk of this chapter devoted to the slow trickle of people responding and and walking into the portals as the number of them swell and that's because that's the stakes it's not like yes we're going to get to this idea of is this plan going to work are they going to succeed are they going to win and how is that going to happen but in the the intimate right now moment it's was Victoria right about people or is this going to be the last straw that makes her write off humanity as a whole? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree hundred percent. Um, that, that scene is written very cinematically, like the way he literally stretches out the time as Victoria's looking, looking around yeah. more and more people are coming in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I wanted to talk about, so <laughs> we got to talk about the 5,000 pounds of gun because there's a there's a lot the number 5000 repeats uh-huh. a lot in this chapter um well a couple times but it relates back to some other stuff so we have this moment where uh, jester he say she's saying goodbye to jester and jester's like take your 5000 pounds of gun you ridiculous person which is just I, it's wonderful i love that mm-hmm. um but then we learn as people start to trickle in that it's going to be about 5000 people right Mm-hmm. Um, about 5,000 people are going to show up. And so we have this, this repetition of that number 5,000. Um, and I, I, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to get too dark here, but like both of these things that are about 5,000 pounds or individuals are tools <laughs> for Victoria to accomplish her objectives. They're being, they're being, uh, uh, equated or compared in some sure. way, perhaps. Yeah. Sure. I mean, and, and it is, I mean, for me, it, it, I, I think I don't think that you're making something up because it's it's been established that the gun weighs like twelve thousand pounds. It's sure. not it's not five thousand pounds. So the the mention of five thousand pounds here is is um I mean obviously Jester might just probably just doesn't know how much it weighs, but the fact that the number parallels of the five thousand later just kind of like uh, t- tickles tickles the brain, right? Yeah, there so. are no accidents, even if it was just coincidental. Yeah, that's that's my motto. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. I think one thing we have to say though is the five thousand humans here. Um, I think it was Dawn in our in the Doof community that pointed this out that that was about the number of capes that were there in Gold Morning in the final mm-hmm. battle. Um, and so there's parallel there. We have five thousand capes standing uh, against Scion. Here we have five thousand humans volunteering to fight. And uh, just just the, the parallels and the ways in which those people are voluntold or volunteer uh and cape and non-cape and it's just like a great contrast between these moments that are coming up on the the climax of each of these stories Mm -hmm. yeah um just just to talk about jester for just a second the idea that he is a a a human but he picked a code name 
Um, <laughs> we've talked about this before. We talked about it back when it happened. I don't remember exactly when that happened. I don't remember if it was, it was in the first arc. It was very early in the story. I think it might have been. Yeah, it might have been. Um, but, but that idea is, um, I feel like that was foreshadowing for all the stuff that's happening now, that, that now all of these people are, are coming onto the, the stage, the, the big powers fighting superheroics stage, and they don't have superpowers. But, I mean, why don't they get their own code names, right? If, if they're going to be... If they're going to be, you know, fighting toe to toe with these alien monstrosities, they all deserve a superhero name. And, and um, so I just I feel like the idea that Jester was taking his code name back then was was kind of foreshadowing. Yeah, I, I, I like that read a lot. And I, I, it makes me think about, you know, that moment and how Victoria kind of was resistant to mm-hmm. allow to call him by that. Like and, and she played it off, I think, fairly as that's a stupid code name, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah. stupid, which fair. But. I think I think there is something to that idea that like, no, it's the it's the capes. It's the heroes that get cape names um, and you're just a human. Um, But in this moment now, as these people come in, the one thing that Victoria does say as she's looking out among these 5000 people that have volunteered to sacrifice their life for this cause, what she says is you're heroes. Um, She says it to herself. But she's looking at all these people and recognizing the heroism in choosing to be here and choosing to come here. And I love that the text shows that there's people of all different stripes, right? There's people that are overly confident. There's people wearing cape uh, shirts and stuff. So like the capes are cool crowd. There's people that look terrified but are still there. I mean, it's like every different type of human being is is part of this 5000 and I, I think it's great. And I love Victoria's reaction to it. I love her recognizing the heroism in these humans that have no power, but uh, were asked to have to to help out. We're, we're, we're included in a way in which humanity has so often not been included in these things and stepped up. Yeah, and totally. I, the moment where she says, ask Kenzie to get photos of every one of them because she doesn't want any of these people forgotten. Um, I was beautiful. I was beautiful. I loved yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, yeah, like you said, um, they all gather in this vast cauldron mega building. There's about 5,000 people. Um, as, we, as we talked about, they spend some time dramatizing it. Wildbo kind of draws it out, lets it be lets it be quite a, a moment, you know, a big chunk of the chapter. Yeah, it's so good. I love it so much. Yeah. Um, I, I guess what I want to kind of talk to you as we go is why these people are here, right? And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's a fascinating thing to explore because – what what is about what Victoria said that made these people come here? And and I think I think it goes back to one of those things that we've been talking about from the beginning is communication. And and like this is what she started on that hard boiled show that went so terribly for her, which was trying to include humanity in what's going on. And I think one of the the brilliant things about the speech is that she opens just being fully upfront about what's happening. Look, you've seen the video. This person said, we're calling this a second trigger. This is what's happening. Um, this is why these things are here. We have not defeated them yet. They're not, they're not really holding anything back as far as what they know about the situation. Mm-hmm. And I think, th- I think humanity responds to that in a way that, that, that makes sense to me. It's like, that's so, at least some of these people, that's the thing that they've been asking for so much throughout this whole process. I, include us, bring us in on this, uh, give us the information, let us know what's going on. Stop doing these shady, you know, behind our backs, like dealing. We need to have a part in this. We need to have a say in this. Yeah, I think part of the problem for people like Gary has always been feeling powerless and perhaps even feeling infantilized to a degree. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. just like like all this all this stuff is happening to me. 
and I never have a say in it. And and even if things go horribly, at least in this case, it went horribly and you had a chance <laughs> to mm-hmm. to um, to affect the outcome in some way. Yeah, I agree. So you don't feel powerless, even if it's still bad. Mm-hmm. That that which which matters. I think that matters it to does. people. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. Um, so yeah, as Victoria's group starts to file through the portals into the cracks in reality, Kinsey tells her that Scotty is attacking one of the other groups. Victoria responds by preparing to shoot some important red crystal shit with her super laser, <laughs> and then, already dark, the sky seemed to darken the shade. I felt the shift in air pressure, like it was all a bit harder to fly in, or I was being pushed down. Which I just quote um, because, for, for I don't know if your reading experience was the same, but like I immediately interpreted that as being oh shit scotty has just teleported right on top of her and is going to kill her because like because that was victoria's intent but i just i love that none of it had to be said that way right like victoria wasn't like i'm going to try to lure her it it was it was just an action she took very quickly and then it had the and then it had this cool effect where like we get all of the writing cues that there is now a giant thing behind her without actually saying that of course the next thing that happens is we get confirmation but you you know before you get the confirmation and yeah i, love I mean that. It, it allows the moment to fold out in the most tense way possible mm-hmm. because yeah the confirmation comes a fraction of a second after uh this this shift in air pressure and i know it doesn't say it but like i just feel like there's like an audible pop there as like <laughs> as like mass enters a space that had no that didn't have it in there before and it doesn't say that in the text but that's just in my head that i just imagine that and it's just like it's just so wonderful i i I really liked i really liked this immediate i like that scotty has this immediate response like yeah it's like oh shit it's on it's on this is victoria taunted and here we go yeah right and you know speaking of which Victoria and Naphtha are able to fight Scotty off, but it seems like one of Scotty's main targets is Victoria or Victoria's gun more precisely. Yeah. Um, basically, Victoria's laser is the biggest threat in the multiverse. Hell yeah, it is. It's <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah. And I mean, like this whole fight is just awesome. <laughs> it's just really cool. I mean, she's she's basically MMO tanking a Titan at this point and it's so i mean we we see here that like scotty's response was so instantaneous that it almost kind of serves to quietly reinforce the plan a little bit here right because like they they recruit all these people they start going down uh heading towards the cracks and the titan that goes towards the greatest threat responds immediately and is there immediately and is fighting them and Mm -hmm. then is kind of and we'll see throughout uh, 19.1 is kind of teleporting back and forth between wrecking shit amongst the humans that are trying to do this and fighting against people who are directly blowing her up with giant lasers. Um, and so it, I think, I think it kind of, without saying it, like made me a little more confident in the plan because it's like, Oh look, this, this is the way this thing's responding. It seems like it's worried. Yeah. I, I think that we get even more confirmation of that, um, as as things move on, especially in 19.1 and, and, it, and it's revealed like all of the Titans are, are converging. Right, basically. right. Yeah, that's how. And even I think the end of this chapter serves to do that. Yeah, I, th- um, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, things are going to be rough with Scotty. And then we have Ophion and Neman coming as, as well. Um, uh, good. Th- <laughs> and, and then, of course, um, Kinsey tells them multiple Titans mobilized. Stranger Titan is closest to you. <laughs> yeah. And that's like, like we were just talking about, that's confirmation that, oh shit, they've, 
we've done it. We've pissed them off. They're all yeah. coming here now. Yep. And then we move on into 18.z where we get in the heads of those Titans. Yeah, it's weird in there. Yep. So first, though, um, it's it's basically so, yeah, it's an interlude that rotates between three of the Titans and each of them has manifested in different ways and different degrees of self remain in each of them. Yeah. And it's really interesting. And I want to kind of dissect that as we go, because the relationship between the remains of self and the shard in each of the Titans is, as you said, distinct and different. And and I think the ways in which the the chapter uh positions the point of view of the character we're in because like the first one we're point of view of hunter but which hunter right like like mm-hmm. because the last one we're definitely in the shard right when we're in uh titan fortuna we're definitely in the perspective of the shard itself because we're seeing memory recall of prior to everything going down on earth and it's just really interesting that, that exactly whose perspective we're in informs the relationship between shard and human and that makes up what this titan is yeah i think if anything it seems like augur is is the least complicated in the sense that it's like oh we're we're getting the point of view of this uh whatever virtualized moat of of the augur person that is retained inside of of the titan and and actually kind kind of finds it horrifying um uh, that that he is trapped inside the Titan, um, which yeah. is kind of contrast with Hunter, who isn't doesn't really feel anything in particular about her current situation as being as being a fate worse than death. Yeah, well, I think what we learn right away and throughout is the personality of the human matters towards the relationship between the two, and matters toward mm-hmm. what the Titan is and what it's doing. Yeah, um, and and I think that's one of the things that I like had the most duh moment when reading this this chapter is I, I was very much and and if you've been listening to the episodes you've heard us talking about well which side are they on so good team or bad team like we're talking about these these titans as if they're like uniform mm-hmm. and they're all either good or bad like we're kind of doing the same same thing with titans that worm talked so much about doing with heroes and villains right like this taking like it's not just good side and bad side it's not just heroes and villains and we quickly learn that these titans are just as individual as any human being in the story so far they they have things that they want and they have goals to try to achieve those wants and and i was trying to lump them together a little bit too much and make it like more of a uniform goal. Um, just like these, well, these are the shards and what they're trying to do is end the cycle. And that's all they care about. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not true as we see here, like they're unique, they're individual. Um, and that makes things a lot more complicated and a lot more interesting. Yeah. I think Wildbo has been rightly praised for his character writing. I mean, I think it's one of his strongest strong suits is yeah. the, the idea that all, all the, all the characters are, are distinct in a way that makes you feel like this is the full gamut of humanity. Um, and I think that's exactly, I, I, I love what you just said there about this idea that each of the shards is an individual. In fact, yeah. in fact, they're all kind of weirdly different from each other, even more it, it, like, like to an even greater extreme than humans are weirdly different from each other because sure. we, we have relatively short lives and so forth. Whereas like the gas, you know, uh, um, focused shard has been the gas focused shard for potentially like millions of years. So who knows how weird she gets? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I think, I think what you said about 
Wabo's ability to create characters and complex and interesting characters is so true. And what I was doing was I was I was looking at a Titan and I was saying, this is a thing with a character inside it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is the thing is a character too. And and, it, and like the complicated nature of what makes up what a Titan is, is still, that's a character. That's a character on its own. And yeah. I wasn't doing that. I wasn't treating um, Scotty as a character. I was not treating Hunter or the Titan version of Hunter as a character. Um, and it becomes very re- evident very quickly in this chapter that that's just wrong. Yep. Um, so first, though, first thing that happens in this chapter is we get background on who we eventually find out is Hunter. Uh, we start the chapter very disoriented. Uh, speaking for myself, I initially assumed that we were um, in the present following one of the refugees of the Gimel megacity. So like this was happening now to someone, yeah. n- not someone evacuating Bet, but someone evacuating Gimel. So we spend a bit of time getting to know Hunter. Uh, a girl uh, whose circumstances have forced her to grow up way too fast. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it's a little disorienting and and it might sound a little conceited to say that, yes, I thought it was a present day evacuation. And therefore, because I thought of that, that must have been an intentional kind of trickery there. But I, I think it maybe kind of was mm-hmm. because like it's this really it's this really jarring cut to people evacuating. And I think the first thing your brain is going to do is go, oh, this has got to be. This has got to be Gimel evacuation, especially in a chapter where we've just set up that human beings are joining the fight. So my immediate reaction to this was, okay, so we're going to maybe go through the perspective of some humans and see how they get involved in this fight. And then we're going to see them struggle um, in this interlude. That was what I thought at first. I I, I agree. I, I thought that was the case. And it actually takes a while. We don't learn Hunter's name. We don't get any explicit references to bet. I think the first reference we get might even be mention of Scion attacking New York. And then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, I get it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you that it is an intentional little, little misdirect um, just to kind of throw you off. And, and it's fun. I, I like it. Yeah, I like it, too. Um, of course, in retrospect, though, when you look at the 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 interlude as a whole, the ending, the way 18.10 ended makes this very obvious, right? Because it's like the end of the chapter is Titans are coming. All these Titans are coming here. And then we immediately cut to the Titans mm-hmm. <laughs> and show and show the ways in which like what they are doing and the ones that are going to eventually start heading towards our characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can we just pause and reflect on how much her aunt and uncle suck? Cause, um, God, they suck. They suck so much. <laughs> and I, I, I like it's, uh, of course her uncle is a, um, a compliant security consultant. He's, he's me. Um, except I don't have a, a I don't have a slipped disc or whatever it was. Bulging disc. Yes. Bulging disc. Thank you. Um, but no, they're, they're, they're awful. And I, I love the ways in which they contrast with Hunter who like there's this this whole scene at the beginning is where they're whining to the people about like what kind of job should we do where do we get to live and they're just like look if you do farming you get a house mm-hmm. you'll just you'll just get a house if you just do farming mm-hmm. and they're like i don't want to do farming and hunter's like i do look i know how to do all these things and it really sets up the dynamic which is hunter feeling like this person does not listen to that is pushed and and pulled and prodded without any input of her own. Um, it's a really great way to contrast who this character is. Um, and I think the book gives us this small moment of victory here when we see how we know her, her uncle shitty. And then we get this moment at the whole end of the interaction where he walks back 
and says success. They might have an administration post open. Goes to show you, you just have to know how systems like this work. And Hunter's like, oh, so we got a house? And he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we didn't. Um, so they still, so like, he didn't do anything. Like, yeah. He he's like he, thinks he he's failed. playing the system, thinks he's greasing the wheels, like, and he's just he failed, not success, yeah. the opposite of success. Right. I mean, as as much as I just uncomplicatedly hate the aunt, the aunt and uncle characters because because they're they're awful and and they're they're bad, um, I I kind of get this idea of like being so disoriented and dislocated and terrified that that they're just desperate to have something that kind of looks like something they're familiar with, and to them the idea of having to be become farmers is probably just utterly terrifying. Sure. And so they're just going to, e- even though it's it's really kind of objectively stupid, they're just going to try to like, they're going to pretend things are fine and that, and that he's just going to get a job as a, uh, you know, he's going to get the same job, basically. He's just going to get, yeah. the, the world ended, but I'm, I'm not going to have to change careers. I'm going to get my same job again. Yeah, just let me tell you. Tent for a while. Let me tell you what, <laughs> what job's going to be really sought after in the <laughs> post-apocalypse world. Security compliance. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I exactly. Have no, I have no skills in the apocalypse, it, man. It, re- it really is a beautiful like way of showing like humanity, uh, e- human failing to cope with changing reality. It's just like, yeah. like I'm, I'm totally I'm totally just going to get my same job again. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think that's reflected in the way they treat Hunter as well, because mm-hmm. as you said at the beginning, Hunter is this person that had to grow up very quickly um, and they are not treating her that way. They are treating her as much of a child as their child is mm-hmm. um and these events what what has happened to hunter what hunter has witnessed and what's going on have aged her um but she's not being treated that way um mm-hmm. and and like as much as yes that's terrible and i think her aunt and uncle suck i get it like i get looking at a kid and not fully understanding that they they can handle more than you think because they've gone through some shit yeah totally i i think we can talk about hunter's character and how she's grown now um so first her her future friend sam first offends her uh, but then he actually listens to her which means a huge amount to her in that moment and and later um let's let's talk about dildos all right yeah (laughs) let's talk about dildos in a way that's very clinical and sucks all the humor out of everything that wild is doing here Uh, so i think it's i think it's simultaneously funny and charming that hunter thinks about dildos 800 times and talks about them like four times uh, because it strikes me as very true that a young teen, um, one one who, like you've mentioned, is sort of forced to grow up too fast, would sort of fixate on like this one weird taboo and shocking idea and just run with it and mention yeah. it like kind of way too many times. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I love it. It's such a great way to paint who Hunter is. And like, let's let's look at the first time it's used, because I think this is actually really clever what Wildbo's doing here because she she's talking about um her aunt here and she said she was so good at sounding like that uh that being affronted always stiff-backed and hypocritically critical and politely impolite it was like she had an unwanted footlong dildo stuck up her ass 24 7 and what i love about that is hypocritically critical and politely impolite is clever Mm -hmm. it's it's just a clever smart turn of phrase coming from this this kid and then immediately followed by by the great the great dildo imagery which is just kind of like um 
childish but re- rebelliously childish in a way um and i just think the two of those like the, those two things combine like this this clever wordplay followed by this this hilariously like crude image um i i think just is just a perfect way of characterizing her as yes absolutely this person who has maybe grown up very quickly but is still a kid in some ways yeah i, I feel like that paragraph that you just read is, is just a perfect example of um painting a character as being complicated and complex in mm-hmm. like two or three sentences it, it's uh, it's masterful i love it yeah yeah, I just like hypocritically critical and politely impolite. It's yeah. just like I, I love repesh, repetition. Um, I think it's and I think that's so clever. And mm-hmm. I, I was like, oh, Hunter, you're really cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I hope nothing bad happens to her. Yeah. Uh, no, so it, don't worry. It won't. It won't. OK. So, uh, of course, a major thing um, this first part of the story is doing is establishing the importance of this one small act of listening on Sam's part, creating a connection that's enough to make her feel okay about going to live in a tent. Yeah. We, we meet Hunter as this angry kid that's ready to go off the handle at just about everyone around her. Um, and then she meets Sam and he listens to her for the first time in forever. Mm -hmm. And the book shows us the, the effect on her immediately. Like, she she's had this great interaction. She almost cries that she's so happy. Her uncle comes back and we see her uncle put his hand on her shoulder, guiding her forward with an impatient kind of insistence. And she bit back the urge to shrug it off or get angry. There was time for that later when Sam wasn't watching. So we see immediately this interaction, this, this, um, this relationship with this guy who was kind to her and listened to her for the first time in forever has immediately shifted the way she acts she's not going to get mad at her dad she's not going to shrug him off and and, and her uncle sorry and and yell at him and get angry because sam is there and so we immediately see this is the effect that this kid has um and of course we're going to carry that through the rest of the rest of this part of the chapter because he's not there Mm -hmm. at later points and yeah right I, i think something to bring up which may which may or may not have an effect on how we talk about Titan Arachne is the fact that um, uh, her her problem has a lot to do with feeling like she's being pushed around and mm-hmm. is not in control. And of course, her power is the classical type where it is completely out of her control. It it, yep. it does shit she doesn't want. She can't she can't control it the way most people can control their powers, which means she's constantly trapped in the position that is the worst thing for her. Which yep yeah. Um, shards. So, yep. So we skip to present day Titan Arachne fighting the goddess giant avatar red queen creation we never really settled on a name for these did we but um no. she's calling it she's calling it the giantess yeah i, I and i love wildbo does another w cut here which is that thing that we named yep. a little while ago uh we have this moment where uh in the past hunter is stepping into the golden sunlight and a, it's it's a future that's so uh figuratively and literally bright that it brings tears to her eyes. And then we cut immediately to a faceless Arachne that doesn't even see with eyes anymore. But yet the woman she's staring at the goddess giant is still so bright because of all the connections to her, um, that it is blinding Arachne. And it's Mm -hmm. just, I, I I love these transition cuts. Like they're just so it's like, it's not essential, right? Like it doesn't like change how you would read the scene, but it just, I don't know. It's just smooth and clever, and I just really like them. Yeah, well, it it makes you feel like it's connected. Sure. I mean, it, and it is connected, but it, but it, it shows you that it's connected. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't she also like 
she said she didn't cry before, but now she's like weeping blood from a yeah. hole in her head or something. Yeah. 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 Um, so apparently the goddess giantess has used her alignment power to just draft a bunch of cheat uh, earth cheat citizens into fighting Arachne, if, if, if I'm reading that right. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Arachne fixates on how Bianca had everything while Hunter had nothing. Yeah. And it, it's it's really like this is one of the things we get. This is like the first time we've been in the head of a Titan for a while and we're seeing like the way that they pull from memories and not just her own memories, but she's looking at goddess looking quote unquote and seeing images of her entire life. Um, uh, what, what Bianca's life was like and what she had and, and comparing it to herself. And I, I really like the, the, this chapter immediately introduces Arachne at, as the thing that had been Hunter, right? Like mm-hmm. this is something that a beat that has hit over. Like, I don't think, in this section, it ever uses Arachne. It might, maybe. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I don't think, though. I think I think it I think it mostly sticks to the thing that had been Hunter. And this is, like, this is a designation that is unique to this Titan in this chapter, right? We see, we're seeing from three Titans' point of views in this chapter, and this one is unique to it. It's the way it's referring to it that way. And it, it feels like the, like a thou dost protest too much moment, where, like, she's pointing out that, I'm no longer Hunter. It's I'm not Hunter anymore, but also using Hunter in the, in your name of what I, you are still, right? Like, like, it's just, it's just like by, by pointing out that I used to be Hunter and now I'm not Hunter. You're like drawing more attention to the fact that you were, and maybe still have some of Hunter in you, which of course textually we'll see confirmed by the end of the section. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, again, we'll, we'll probably do a bit of jumping around here to, to compare and contrast amongst these, but it does definitely seem like Augur is distinct from his shard. Yeah. Uh, uh, Fortuna is definitely distinct from her shard and she's almost like brushed to the side. But Hunter seems like Hunter is is almost inseparable from the shard. Like, yeah. like there doesn't really seem to be a distinction between what the shard is doing and what Hunter is doing. It just seems to be this new there's this new thing now the the yeah. hunter shard amalgam which there. has which sort of does things that hunter would want to do but also you don't think well like hunter wouldn't want to just kill a bunch of people so mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah i think i think there's actually and i don't i didn't pull it but there's actually a line later in the chapter that says like uh the titan um the the cape and the teen girl were all in alignment. So basically that's mm-hmm. what's happening here is like they're aligned in what their goals are. And I think yeah. that is that is a, a truism that is throughout this chapter, though, is that no matter what the relationship between shard and human are, they act in alignment, kind of mm-hmm. um, like, yeah. It's yeah. Very, it's very interesting. Like like we'll see at the end with Contessa, we'll see that the Fortuna Titan like not negotiates, but like talks with the child Fortuna mm-hmm. uh, to to be on the same page before they before they make their choice. And here they're all on the same page. Augur's is a little bit different, but I still think they're generally like in his mind he sees it as you're in control, but I'm definitely helping you. So mm-hmm. they 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 are a lot. It's different, but broadly the same yeah i'm also reminded that the hunter that we met in that in the first part of this chapter hasn't yet had to deal with um well i mean we're about to see it right so so we we skip back to hunter struggling with her out of control new power and then amy shows up to help her get it under control and she gives her that tweak that starts her all on this path yeah um which 
which is kind of what makes like mince made the crazy um uh uh we we don't really recognize this hunter in the in the mince made character who who we meet later on right because she kind of she kind of loses a bit of herself she's kind of halfway between shard and, and person um but anyway uh in this section um it's still her connection to her friend that she goes to first after after feeling gratitude that she's been helped by Amy. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about that in a bit, but first I want to talk about Amy because this is one of those sections that out of context reads completely different than in context, right? Yeah. Because like out of context is like, oh, look, here's this person that walks in this room and helps this person with their problem. And mm-hmm. you're like, that was nice. Thanks. It was so thankful. Yeah. But because we know the finish line of this whole thing, this whole area, this whole part of the chapter just reads as uncomfortably disgusting. And like, you're just like kind of horrified as it's happening because you know, what's going to happen. And it's so, it's so fascinating to me how context can completely change the tone of a scene where if, if I were to just cut all this part out and just send it in a word doc to someone, um, they would be like, Oh cool. Someone, someone needed help. And then someone came in and helped them. Right. Look at that. You're great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- think about the horrible tragedy and, and irony of all of this that, uh, Victoria did indeed um, help Hunter from the beginning. Like that was very early in the story. It might've even been arc one where she hears, I think from Sam, I didn't actually go back and look it up, but I think it yeah. was Sam who tells her that his friend is struggling and basically, unfortunately puts uh, Hunter on this path that leads into Amy's clutches. And now here to being this monster. Um, yeah. It's, it's yeah. awful. It was the very, be- I think it was the second arc. Cause she runs into Sam when she's doing her hospital rounds, right? Yes, think, yeah. which is after the which is after yeah. Fumehood is shot, which is another thing that was set up at the beginning yeah. of the book. Yeah. And resulted in a Titan. We're gonna have to reread this book, Matt. Yeah, we are. We've got we've got Ward again. <laughs> um Yes, uh, but, but I want to talk about the ways in which this section ends, though, because just like the W cut we talked about before, we end the section with Amy asking her what's the first thing she would do uh, if she was cured. And she says, dance, hug my friend and then cry. Right. Those are the three things she says. Um, and then we cut to her in Titan form dancing and then she grabs goddess and hugs her really tight. Um, and she, I don't think she ever cries, but she's certainly like laughing yeah. maniacally throughout I, it all. I think this is where she's crying blood out of the hole in her head. Yeah, I think you might be yeah, right. I th- yeah, I think I said it too early last time. But that's, again, like this, this just little subtle, awesome. uh, subtle structure thing that's going on here. What will you do when you're freed? And that's what she's doing, but a horrified version of that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's more than just poetic writing. Like I think it's showing that there's these echoes and refractions of who Hunter is manifesting and how, how, uh, Arachne is, is conducting herself. Yeah, I agree. So goddess, um, giantess is extremely strong, but Arachne manages to grab her in a bear hug and crush her. And then she turns to fight Jaborim and, and mother. Um, she sees Chris in the distance and, uh, she sees him as everything in herself she hated and everything outside herself she hated. So I love that. Got, got kind of a vendetta for Chris going on. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? Well, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's going to go somewhere, though. Like, I don't sure. think I mean, Chris, Chris feels like a character whose arc we have not completed yet. Yeah. I mean, she says in this moment that like he was there in the room when Amy did this stuff mm-hmm. to her. And, and that's where like part of the hatred comes from. But yeah, I mean, I absolutely think we are we are starting to lay the the seeds for some 
focused Chris stuff because mm-hmm. I like he's here. He's like fighting out against the Titans a little bit. And I, I think there's that moment where she, she recognizes a look on his face of like, or she acknowledges like, this isn't the way you wanted things to go at all. Um, which seems to be like, like starting to, to lay the foundation for this idea that Chris has gotten in over his head and maybe we're going to see some change in him. Maybe, maybe finally, uh, I still have hope for Chris. I, yeah. I don't know if I should, but I still, I still do. I mean, he's a, he's a gigantic asshole, but like, I believe him when he said his goal was like, we need to save everyone and get them off this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I don't, I think he's realizing that he's, that he's basically failed in his goal. So, yeah. And I, I mean, I want to see, I want to see where he goes. I'm, I'm really interested in him. He's been this character that like has kind of like dropped out of the story and just made little tiny appearances here and there. But I really I really want the book to, to really focus on him. And I really mm-hmm. want to see I want to see how because I don't think I don't think we're just going to get like, oh, it's time for the Chris redemption arc. I don't, I don't think that's quite going to be how it ends up shaking out. Um, but I am interested in him enough as a character to to just be really curious where the rest of his story goes, because I agree with you. It's not over. It absolutely is not over. Yeah, I'm trying to think if Wildbo has ever done what what one would call a redemption arc. And I think the reason why I'm not immediately getting an answer in my head is that I don't think he would do one in a way where it was obvious. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it would, it would, it would be realistic and complex and no one in real life actually gets a redemption arc. <laughs> and thus yeah. I wouldn't expect someone in, in a pair of humans to get one. But, um, well, and I think it's going to be important to what I think the book is trying to say about all these big, broad themes, right? Like, Chris is a person that was with everyone else working towards getting better. He abandoned that goal. He left. There's got to be consequences for that. And mm-hmm. how those consequences shake out in his continued story are going to be part of what the book ends up concluding in its way about what it's saying about these things. So mm-hmm. yeah, he's yeah, important. Like he's important is what I'm saying. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, he's been here since the beginning. Um, I, I, I think it works so well how we get the parallel of, uh, her her using capital D dildo and capital B birth um, in the former case being Hunter in the latter case being uh, being Arachne describing describing what's coming out of the mother um, monster. Yeah, it's I when I saw it, I like got excited, like yeah. visibly excited because it's just this really clever way of reinforcing all the stuff we've been talking about that there is this connection from the person she was to the person she is now. Um, and, and it really helps seal to me what the chapter is doing about making, making us understand what the Titans are. Um, and it's just a really kind of, I guess it's kind of subtle. I mean, it kind of pulls attention to itself. Like it's such a, it's such a specific way of talking that I think it immediately draws attention to itself. And, and while repeats it three times in this, uh, and and I think he does it in a clever way where we we introduce it in the hunter section with capital D dildo, and then I think there are two uses of it in rapid succession within an arachne section that mm-hmm. is just like maybe if you missed it the first time here let me do it again right mm-hmm. after that and maybe you'll 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 draw that line. Yeah, um, I think structurally it's very well done to to kind of clue the reader in on what's going on there. Yeah, I, I, I going back to your comment about like. Uh, she doth protest too much moment. Um, the fact that the fact that Arachne uses these like mental uh, uh, verbal ticks is suggestive of like, yeah, there's definitely a lot of Hunter left in here. Sure, sure. And I think one of the things that we've been primed through 
Victoria's conversations with Tattletale is this idea that like you shouldn't try to break apart what is Hunter, what is Shard, Mm -hmm. what is Titan, whatever, like look at them holistically. That's what that's the, the refrain we've been hitting over and over again throughout the story. And I think we're doing it again here with these Titans. This is this is still this is some it is a it is an amalgamation that it includes every bit of it and and trying to segment it out too much uh is not a good good idea yeah good point um so we learned that arachne just wants to be free she doesn't want to join with the other titans that's not her thing yeah and uh and she isn't interested in destroying the world and like not starting a new cycle she doesn't even want to destroy she doesn't even want to just blow up things and why is that she says because of sam because of Sam and some of the other people she still loves. Um, and, and so that is, I think this is, I think maybe in the auger part, it says this more textually, but this is when I realized that what these flashbacks are is not just like flashback for reader's sake, right? It is, this is actually what's happening in the chapter that like memories are being recalled to, to, uh, to drive or help reinforce the goals of the collective unit. Like let's remember Sam because we don't, we have to remember. And I think it says here, like playing that memory on loop over and over again to remind ourselves of, we don't want to destroy everything because there are still people in this world that we care about. So do you, do you think that she's just fighting now because they're attacking her? Like she, cause she seemed pretty destructive, like with, with the killing all the people part no i think Um, she totally wants to kill a bunch of people i just don't think she wants to kill all the people okay (laughs) i think she's interested in killing a whole whole lot of people but maybe she blames the 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 earth sea people for what happened to her or something like that yeah i Um, well definitely the shin people um and or yeah i I, I think she wants to kill a whole whole bunch of people (laughs) i think i I meant yeah earth c or or earth s yeah whatever yeah yeah um i still haven't nailed that down exactly I, i guess but because she does, she doesn't want to kill everybody, but she's definitely killing a lot of people. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll um, see. I do think like the 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 most interesting part of this for me though is is where this ends, right? Because we don't end on this moment of Arachne saying like, "I just want to be free. I don't I don't want to kill everyone. I'm going to be on my own. I'm resisting the pull from Goddess's mind whammy, but I'm also resisting the pull from all the other Titans reaching out and wanting to connect with me. We don't end there. We end where we cut back to Hunter. And it says this way, uncle said hand on her shoulder, pushing her forward. Right. So we, we cut it. It's so fascinating to me that like we could have just ended there, but we cut back to presumably back in the past of just that moment of being pushed and pulled and prodded forward. Um, and I think it's that's that's really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's really cool. It's it's one sentence, and and usually you know it's broken by the by the the page break symbol, mm-hmm. gold morning symbol, and I think it's really cool. Yeah, it's just it it indicates this feeling for her, right? This feeling of constantly being pushed and and not really in control of herself. Yeah, it, it is a way to scream out at the very end of the section that this is this is what motivates. Uh, mm-hmm. hunter this is this is why mm-hmm. this has happened because yeah. of this feeling this you can almost say this is a kind of backlash against all that mm-hmm. so yeah i mean we've established we've established titan aragne as as a character now not just yep. a a force and i think that's going to 
not I don't think that's just like Wildlo thought it would be cool if if we had a Titan POV. Like we're we're going I think think I think it's going to matter that we know who Arachne is as distinct from Hunter. We know who Titan Augur is as distinct. Well, we never knew Augur in the first place, but <laughs> um yeah, I th- I think it is going to matter. Yeah. So now we meet Augur. Uh, and he's a mercenary who's very in tune with his destructive power. We follow him blasting his way through a clandestine facility, fighting off overwhelming odds, and using his blaster power on himself to blast himself into another dimension temporarily. Yeah, and he's, I love, Wildbo just does like really quick characterization here where we really understand who this guy is almost mm-hmm. immediately. Like he's a guy who lives by this pretty strict rule-based system. The first words he said are three rules to a job. And then he goes through each one of them. And it makes sense when we learn that his power is basically like a, a cycling th- rule of three mm-hmm. where it's like his blaster power cycles through three different things. And like three seems to be an important number to him generally. Um, and it's just really like like we did with Hunter, like we very quickly did with Hunter using the, the dildo jokes and using her contrasting with her uncle and aunt. Um, here we immediately understand who Augur is by just like the, this this emphasis on rules, on order, on preparation, um, on uh, deals and that kind of thing. Yeah, I like that. And, and um, of course, of course, it's established that he's one of these capes who we've, we've heard about who's just so in tune with his power that he gets uh, bonuses, if you will. Um, kind of reminds you of, of like Jack, where mm-hmm. he, he, he maybe gets more, um, more leeway from his power than he would otherwise. Um, it kind of like throws him, throws him cool new uses and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, we cut to Titan Augur. Uh, now his power has taken on a tinker aspect. Um, but now Augur the man is a voice in the head of the Titan. Yeah. And, and this immediately reinforces what we've been talking about before, that this arrangement between <laughs> Shard and human is distinctly different from the Hunter Arachne relationship, um, where Arachne seemed like it was both hunter and and not hunter with maybe a tiny bit of fragment of like past save files of hunter um auger seems more active and separate right not in control but influencing and and basically what we do here is we create a dynamic that is the reversal of the typical cape shard arrangement right where the the cape is in charge but the shard is like pushing and influencing um and the way Augur describes his relationship is the exact opposite of that is that the shard is now driving. He, he refers to it. Like he, he personifies it and talks to it. Um, he talks to his power, at least in his head. Um, and then it is aware enough to like send it memories and send like the, the memories we're seeing in this section are ones that Augur is picking to help provide ideas to the shard that is in control. Like here's, here's a way to get out of this situation here, have this memory. Um, and so he's such so much more active and aware, um, of the arrangement than we saw in Arachne. Yeah. And this makes a ton of sense because the shard always thought he, it seems like the shard thought he was a great host. He's like, the shard's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, you're great. You, you know how to do this stuff. We're we're in sync. So now that the shard's in the driver's seat, the shard's going to be like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to use my human as a resource because, he always knew what he was doing before, and if if anything, he probably knows better than I do how to how to do this battle stuff. I, I'm just the power. Yeah, and um, and the way Augur describes it is he he cut a deal, right? Mm-hmm. Like at the moment of tightening, in his mind, the shard was like, "All right, buddy, here's what's going on. Yeah, you you get to live, but I get to drive." And he's just like, "Yeah, okay, I'm fine with that." 
Um, and it's just it's so unique to the to everything we saw with Hunter's situation. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of of the the couple of moments where Dauntless's power like feels like it sighs with frustration when he refuses the full measure of the power. Yeah, yeah, and then and then later is like satisfied um, when when he finds out that his son is alive, and um, basically it's just kind of communicating that his his power is. Mm, I don't want to say it's subservient, but it, his power needs his go ahead to do yeah. certain things. Yeah. Which is, again, unique mm-hmm. from that. Like it's it, it's all every one of these relationships is unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I, I like that as much as we have this, like he made a bargain. Um, he's aware of the situation. He knows what's going on. We do see conflict in it. Right. Because. Mm-hmm. He says to himself, well, he had time to figure it out. He would be like this forever, maybe. And this is a tiny part of him buried deep, deep inside, express the deepest and darkest kind of terror at that notion. Um, so, like, it, it it shows, like, it would almost be too simplistic to just define this as shard human, right? Mm-hmm. It's more complicated than that. There are more facets going on here than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Uh, turns out that Axehead, uh, not not described as Scotty, not not Titan Scotty, but Axehead, yep. arrives to help him fight Valkyrie. Uh, he thinks briefly that he can manage uh, that, that he can imagine having a connection with Axehead, like like a human connection. But but this imagining is the closest that he can get to a real connection. Yeah, I like that you you pointed out um, that he he calls her by her cape name, and because that jumped out at me too. Like that's mm-hmm. very. Uh, that's very significant. I think he he still views these people as their cape forms, yeah. just like he does himself. Like I think it's it's intentional. Turns out that Augur does not have a Titan name still mm-hmm. um, that we know of. Yeah, it's funny because my brain did a trick on me where I I thought that Augur I was like oh Augur works as a uh, as like a mythical reference because it's like a, uh, a a foreteller, and then I, and then like only now am I like no. It's auger with an E, which is a drill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's nothing to, nothing to do with the foretelling usage. Mm-hmm. It's just a, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, yeah. Um, but I do like what you pointed out. Like, their connection is, is, he describes it as the only way he feels warmth anymore. And, like, basically what happens is they look at each other, or he looks at, at Axehead and sees every, like, facet and potential between them. And like says, oh, in one possible potential, we were close mm-hmm. and I feel the warmth of that potential. And that's all I've got. That's all, the only bit of warmth and happiness I have left. And I think that goes to, maybe to me to explain the desire to connect amongst these these shards, because I think what, what we've been doing. And again, I think to my detriment, I've been doing this is is once again saying like, oh, the shards, shards want to connect with each other. So that's just what's happening here. But I, it seems like Wildbo has written in a a actual like in-universe reason for why these things are drawn to connect beyond just like well that's their shards that's what they want to do like even the human beings left in there somewhere also feel this pull of connection if the only warmth you can feel anymore is when you look and see this moment of connection between you and the other titan standing there well that's how you get the human on board for this whole reach out and connect with each other thing and i like that that's written into the story yeah yeah i mean it once again it's it's taking a, a human a human concept that we care about and wrapping it in a cool sci-fi conceit and yep. threading it through everything perfectly. 
So uh, in the past, again, he finds himself in a situation where he knows he can't win the fight, but he can create enough of a mess that his enemies can't afford to pursue him. Um, basically, he's, like you said, bringing up this memory to give the Titan self an idea. So back in the present, Titan Augur riffs on this idea, leaving the heroes to unsuccessfully fight off the machine army as he makes his way into the city. Yeah, and I mean, this kind of goes into the fact that we know shards are, especially unconnected shards, are uncreative. Um, and they can't they're not really good at problem solving. Mm-hmm. So Augur is being nice and, and problem solving here. And yeah, like as we were talking about before, these flashback sequences are not just for the benefits of the reader. They are textually occurring in the book. We are seeing this memory because this memory is being fed to the point of view character we're currently in. Um, and look, I don't want to go too Byron chocolate here, but remember when Victoria had like a random flashback at the beginning of one of her chapters that we, we pointed out, it was like, Oh, that's unusual. Like that uh-huh. doesn't happen very often that Victoria will flashback. And now here's a textual situation where characters are flashing back to moments of importance for reasons. I don't even know what I mean by <laughs> introducing this Matt, but it just struck me. Yeah. Uh, if we get more f- like explicit Victoria flashbacks, um, I'll be super worried. I, I mean, if if I'm going to invent what you mean, then it's like, well, this is her, this is some kind of dialogue between her and her shard. Maybe it was her shard poking this memory into her mind to be like, hey, you should be thinking about this right now. You should yeah. be thinking about, you should be thinking about um, the, um, the patrol, you know, thinking about the humans. You should be thinking about the humans. They're a resource that you're not tapping right now. Yeah. I don't know. I like that because it, it's, that's a solution that is not as terribly ominous as the one that was in my head, which is like, Oh, she's a fucking Titan already, man. <laughs> uh, which I don't actually think is true, but I, I like that. The, yeah, that's it's, it is representative of communication between shard and host when we see these flashbacks. Yeah. I like that. I think that she might be susceptible to being a Titan because like, um, you know, I think the reason why, um, uh, uh Hunter, you know, went Titan so easily was that the door was already halfway open for her. Sure, sure. And and this the door is uh, not closing properly for Victoria either. So yeah, and, and this isn't a new idea. I think we've been talking for like weeks now about this idea that uh oh things look bad. Is Victoria gonna be the? Is Victoria gonna be the one that ends the world? Um, that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, you're <laughs> right because I think I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, the book drew specific uh, comparisons in the door opening in the hunter section. Yes, I think so. The, yeah, so. The so. similar similar verbiage there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I like mm-hmm. that. So we jump over to Titan Fortuna. Uh, first off, we have confirmation that this shard is indeed the forward-looking eye of the lonely Abaddon. Is that how you say it? The, the third entity, uh, the one that distracted Eden. Uh, we get a lot of yummy, well-written stuff as we see how the eye thinks about all this. Uh, I love the, uh, the, the fruit on the dead tree imagery that this yeah. uh, shard thinks in. It's really good. And of course, what it does is immediately establish that this point of view is different. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, In Hunter section, we're kind of seeing this kind of combined Hunter Arachne thing in Augur's. It's definitely Augur. Um, It's much more human based, like he's talking to the shard as if it's a different part of him. Mm -hmm. But here, this is the shard point of view. We're Mm -hmm. seeing things 
from the perspective of the eye of the loner, um, from the perspective of that shard, because there's no there's in in Fortuna's section, there's no flashbacks, right? There are no specific like section breaked flashbacks like we had in the previous two. Um, she is just kind of remembering. She's remembering the time uh, when she as as part of loner bumped into the other entities and, and made this arrangement and and linked with uh the child fortuna and did all these things so yeah it, this is absolutely unique again and i think like we talked about before this is showing who's maybe in more control here um that in in the case of this titan the shard the eye seems to have the most amount of control yeah um you know it's it's a it's Contessa's shard has always been an exception, right? And, and now we have right. full confirmation of that, that a lot of the rules that govern the other shards are just not going to apply. Um, I think uh, now I'm going to I'm going to misquote this and, and everybody's going to correct me. Um, but what didn't Scion say specifically that her shard um, was like not one of his shards, but was also not dead? I thought I remembered him saying that her shard was not dead specifically. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't it was only like two years ago. So, um, but anyway, I think that has to be true, right? Because that that has to be true. Because I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> and I'm not know. sure what the implications would be exactly. I think I was just pointing out that like we 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 know that like her shard her shard is a wild card and kind of always has been and continues to be here even as a titan. Yeah, cuz the dead shards were the ones made from Eden corpse. Yeah. And she was already broken off by that point. I think so. Yes. And also it I don't know. <laughs> Man, I, I wish I wish we had spent like a year and a half like diving <laughs> super deep into this book so we would remember these things. <laughs> uh I think so, that's right though. Something along these lines. Yeah. Uh, so we find out that Fortuna is basically locked in a stalemate with the Seamurg, who keeps corrupting all the paths that she's generating. In every instance, the Seamurg's main objective seems to end up uh, with horribly suffering but still alive humanity in some form. Hey, silver lining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that the only definitive answer we get here is that the Seamurg and Contessa are not working together. We speculated on that a couple weeks ago. Uh, they seem to each have their own agendas and they are in direct opposition of each other. And while neither seems particularly great for team humans being alive, um, it seems that the Seamurgs might be slightly more preferable. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and, I mean, the ending is very ominous to me, though, because it says basically that the child which is, you know, Contessa, the, the woman, and, and Titan Fortuna come to an agreement that they'll take a path which, um, basically it's a path that the Seamurg kind of approves. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the path is hold the cracks back until the right moment. Um, the, the child and the Titan thought in concert. Yeah. And that's the fact that the, like the Seamurg was already kind of leaving at that point, which means the Seamurg was like, yep, this is what I want. Sure. So that's that's... I think that's bad. It, it is. I mean, I think it's bad all around. And I think what we'll see in the next chapter is part of step one of this path involves Fortuna sending all of her connected shard but or Titan buddies to the point to the battle. Right. Because then like we, the ones that she's fighting with, the ones that Victoria are fighting with in the next chapter at, outside of Scotty at the beginning, I think are all it says specifically they're all Contessa linked Titans. I think. Yeah, I don't remember. 
I think I'm I'm you're, 99% sure on that. You're you're probably right. Um I want to talk about the child though because I think this is really interesting, right? Because when the Titan Fortuna is thinking about Contessa or or Fortuna it talks about her in the form of the kid that she was before all this started, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting because we've talked so much about how this like the interaction with the shard kind of arrested Contessa's development and she was kind of like a child. Um, and, and I just, I think it's very interesting that that's the way it, it sees her. The, the, the part of Fortuna that is left is seen by the other one as a child, that, that kid that in that moment killed Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very interesting because again, this is unique to this, this Titan alone. This is not something, this is not a range that we saw in either of the other two. Yeah. Um, another, another thing that I think is unique is, is it, it, it seems like this shard, I mean, this shard doesn't respect, uh, Contessa in the same way that like Augur's shard respected him, I would say. Sure. Sure. It, because it sees her as a child. It, it thinks of her as a child and it's not really consulting her for like advice. It, it clearly thinks that it's the one who knows what's doing and should be in charge. Um, there, it's almost the exact opposite of the situation with Augur, where his shard is like, "Oh, this this guy is awesome. I want to, I want to keep him on board." Um, this this one is like kind of almost annoyed that it has to, it has to, it has to uh, deal with this uh, child that it sees as being so inferior and and not not really worthy of its power. And yet, it still goes to her, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, 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 they still come to an agreement on that. Like the child Fortuna says, "I don't want to be a slave anymore." Uh, Titan Fortuna says, yeah, me neither. Totally. Same page. And they yeah. come to a group decision on the path that they're going to take, um, which you think if like, I, I don't know, maybe we're putting too much into this, but you think if that wasn't a necessary step that Contessa would have just like, or that, that the Titan Fortuna would have just said, okay, here's what I'm doing. Um, but mm-hmm. we see this coming together of the facets of that make up this Titan in agreement on what the next step is. Um, and that says something that even yeah. in this arrangement where I agree that the Titan or the shard or what have you is still in in a much more in charge than either of the other two we've seen. There is still that that uh, negotiation and agreement happening here. Yeah, I guess that makes it all slightly less horribly ominous that the, the fact that, you know, the child Fortuna, the the woman Contessa, whatever, um, approved of this plan. And presumably yeah. she doesn't want horrible, horrible things to happen. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because when the Titan is going through its paths to victory, um, it seems like based on what we see in those that the end goal is complete the cycle. Yeah. Like, but it doesn't actually ever come right out and say that it just says in the path where this happens, blah, 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 happens in the path where this happens, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so, like, it doesn't ever like explicitly say my goal is to complete the cycle. It just mm. says in the steps to take to get there, here's what will happen. Here's what I see happening with the Seamurks tampering with me. Um, mm. So maybe I'm just being too optimistic. <laughs> maybe I just really want Contessa to not be awful. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. I, I, I just assumed that she was explicitly looking for plans that were going to blow up the earth and kill everybody. Um, but now that you mentioned that it isn't specifically written that way, I'm like, huh, maybe that's a clever clever thing that we're going to realize is meaningful later on or it's so, my like desperate optimism yeah well good possible hopeful catch okay great yeah great. 
Well, that's the end of arc 18. Um, we're going to go on into arc 19, I guess. Yeah, we're going to move from radiation to infrared. Infrared or infrared, as I said, as a young a young person. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah. That's like, that's like when my sister said cathedral instead yeah. of cathedral. Yeah, definitely the first time I read the word was like, ah, infrared light. I don't cool. blame you. Like, yeah. That's it, like what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. There's no dash in there. Anyway, uh, 19.1 and uh, I think we'll talk about this more toward the end, but this is a pretty unusual intro chapter. Um, uh, the intro chapter for the arc plunges us right back into the tactical situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Titans converging from multiple directions, including the stranger Titan. It's just picking up right off from the end of, of the last uh, 18 chapter with Victoria. A mysterious class SS marker is on the horizon, um, which we'll find out later what that probably is. Um, and Victoria is comparing the humans to hornets attacking better equipped and more durable giants. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I agree that it's unusual and that normally we use the, um, the arc break as a way to move forward time incrementally, but mm-hmm. this is literally just pick up right, right where we left off. Um, and I, I, I think it's really evocative way to begin the arc because you can hear Victoria's near hopelessness in this moment that only gets worse as the battle goes on as more Titans continually join the fray. Uh, but, uh, like, and and I think it's important to note here that this was her plan and therefore success or failure of the plan is at least in Victoria's head entirely on her, right? If this plan fails, it's all her fault. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course if this plan succeeds, she's not going to take credit for her because that's just who she is. Um, but, I think this is the emotional focal idea of this chapter, right? Is um, it, it it has this oh fuck moment here where we're all screwed and all is lost, but no one is taking this harder than Victoria because the reason why we're here, the reason why we're doing this is because the plan she came up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, I think, I mean, that it, if we're, if we're setting the table for arc 19, then I think her feeling of responsibility for this might be a big part of arc 19. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a very fun sense of tempo to this battle uh, as the heroes repeatedly ensnare Scotty only for her to uh, teleport her way free again. It's also fun that Victoria takes something of a central role, possessing one of the more destructive weapons on the scene. So we get some very awesome moments in this chapter where she fires a laser, then kind of just tosses it and fights Scotty hand to hand and then catches the laser before it falls. You know, someone pointed out when Titan Scotty first came in uh, it to being that it sounds like Scotty, uh-huh. like as in my name with a and now Y you keep on it. Hearing it. And I can't, I can't, I didn't hear it at all the first time I said it. And now I can't unhear it. Me too. Um, it's real bad. <laughs> I was actually thinking about like just saying we should just say Skatey from now on, but sure. It, it, it very well could be Skatey. I don't even know. <laughs> I didn't look it up. So I just know that ska is a type of music. So just throw that's, a DI on the end there. And, that's true. Yeah. It's probably a reference to that. Yeah, that's absolutely what it is. Um, <laughs> No, I, I think you're absolutely right that this is just like a lot of fun action to open that. I mean, like it, things get more and more dire as we go along, but it doesn't mean we can't have some fun with it. And her like throwing the gun, punch, 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 catching the falling gun combo is really awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I also like that, like, not only is it awesome, it's realistic because we have these moments where Victoria's like, ooh, the gun didn't like that, which is also part of a trend of Victoria increasingly personifying her weapon. As the fight continues to the point where she talks to it when she sets it down at the end of the chapter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and yeah, you're right. This chapter actually has more lights, lighthearted stuff in it than I feel like pretty much anything in the last arc did. 
Um, I'm referring specifically to her interactions with Crystal. Yeah, um, well, I think those moments cut through the dire hopelessness um, in a very intentional kind of way mm-hmm. where it's like you got to juggle this and we need to cut this tension a little bit. Um, yeah, we'll talk about those when we get to yeah, it. But. OK, OK. Um, so ever the thinker, Victoria tries to figure out the best way to leverage her new weapon, comparing herself to legend and purity, but eventually settling on Crystal as the one to imitate. <laughs> Crystal uh, typically drops in a close range to better aim her lasers. And so Victoria tries to copy that behavior. So she notes that she's been in Alexandria light and now calls herself like a faux legend. Are we going to have a three beat where she's like a quasi idolin? Well, with that. What would that even look like? God, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, she does have a bunch of different powers. Um, so like leveraging multiple powers at once, you could sort of say she's already doing that. But yeah. um, I mean, my brain immediately went back to the one part where Victoria like ruminates on what kind of person Idolin was for a while. And you and I were like, oh, oh we're setting up something. Setting up so something. my brain's like immediately going like, here it is. Here it is. Everyone's going to hate her because that they all hated Idolin too. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's where my brain went. Yeah. Idolin kind of has been the specter in the background of, of the story. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which is, let's not forget the Seamurg and her planning. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Yeah. Right. Cause she, cause what she wants is tied with that. Right. That's true. Cause she, she wants a new, I mean, she wants a new handler. Right. So that, Mm -hmm. that could be maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I do love that she lands on crystal strategy here though which seems to marry like her general close quarters combat with um with uh the crystals long distance fighting mm-hmm. um but it's so funny to me because when she lands on it she's like oh yeah this was the thing that crystal would do that would really piss off everyone in the yeah. family so i'm gonna do this <laughs> yeah that that's that's true that's yeah. it that's hilarious yeah um before we move on there's a moment here that i wanted to talk to you about where Victoria is basically like, yeah, I'm like totally fine dying. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I, I could deal with these things. If it was just my life on the line, but I owe all these people out here as well. And that's certainly noble. I just kept hearing Natalie's voice in the back of my head as I read this part where, where she says she's worried that people on this team would sacrifice their life, even if it wasn't entirely necessary. Um, and I feel like that's where we're headed with this, where the, Victoria just talks about how, like, yeah, I, I basically become completely fine with dying myself. It's just the only thing that's keeping me here and centered is I have all these other people to worry about as well. Um, and yeah. it feels like that's where we're headed. And I hope that there's someone here to, like, pull Victoria away from that when we get there, this is the bit where she's thinking about like her, her just her life experiences have taught her like, ah, capes always just die really young. And yeah, yeah. and I, and I'm going to die really young. Might as well be now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and to, to emphasize this part right after this, there's a moment where I think she's looking at Tristan and maybe Sveta. She's looking at her team on the ground fighting and she thinks to herself, I wanted to think we were doing what Tristan had suggested, working together, putting emotion aside, being removed from things with a heavy weapon in my hands helped a bit in that regard. So a couple things here, Matt. I don't quite think that's what Tristan meant when he said when he was offering this advice for whether or not they should go into battle. I don't think Tristan's point was, you should try to put your emotion aside before you walk out on the battlefield. I think Tristan's point was, I don't think you can do that. And if you feel like you're getting swept up in your emotions, you shouldn't go fight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you can't really put your emotion aside. Mm-hmm. And I think this is worth talking about because I feel like this is a classic 
Victoria failure mode is like a failure to appreciate the degree to which her emotions affect not just her um, mental state of being, but also her choices and the way she sees the world. Yeah. And, And this is just this is just the way it is. Like if if you're if something bad happens in your life and you're super sad like everything just looks a certain way like you you, everything looks dismal you don't see opportunities you would have seen otherwise you don't see the good in things if you're angry then um the the people who are across from you look like enemies they look like opponents they look like people who are against you and you wouldn't see them that way if you weren't in that frame of mind that's 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 almost the function of emotion It's, it's an orienting reflex that causes us to see the world in it's literally a filter it's a filter that presents to the conscious mind like the the idea that the world is actually that way so to say you're going to set it aside it's it's like you can't it's like setting aside your eyes like it doesn't work that way yeah and i think tristan's entire point was you you get in these situations and and when you realize it it's almost too late like Mm -hmm. he 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 got into that fight in a terrible emotional state and made a split second decision that he regretted instantly um but it was too late and like just this idea of like what Tristan was saying is, oh, I just got to put this emotion aside, which importantly, um, she's not doing right. Like, like not only is I think she's she's interpreting what Tristan's argument was incorrectly here. I also think she's not putting her emotion aside. And and I think she knows that the service set because the way she phrases this, I wanted to think we were doing what Tristan had suggested. Mm-hmm. So I think he's reading his intent wrong, but also kind of aware that she's not doing it because right after this moment we get this part where she like like rants about how much she hates scotty like Uh not just as an enemy but just like as like like just the way she fights like she hates it she hates it and like she really gets like like swept up in her hatred of this titan um and it's like that's those are emotions (laughs) yeah Right. I mean, the idea that she she sees Scotty as someone like yell, like screaming at her face constantly. Right, it's, right. it's very visceral um, and is, is the kind of thing that would cause you to make uh, a foolish, a foolish move. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so I'm just like uh, if like Tristan was listening to her in her monologue, I think it would be like, hey, wait a minute. That's not that's not quite what I meant there. <laughs> yeah. I feel the whole- like I feel like you're, you're spot on that like Tristan. Tristan saying that and Victoria completely whiffing on it is 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 a huge like indicator of where we're going in the near term with Victoria. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, So it's a minor thing, but the idea that Lung shows up here only to be useless yet again is somehow perfect. (laughs) Poor Um, Lung. And and of course, it's totally consistent with what we know of his power. So, yeah, we get this moment of hope where like I think she gets a message from Kenzie that's like, I think Lung can can lock down Scotty. And then we see later. Nope. No, nope. no. It turns out Scotty realized basically that if, if she doesn't fight him, then he doesn't grow and thus just don't fight him and he won't be a threat. Um, I mean, I guess it could have worked conceivably, but no. Yeah. So Wildbo introduces a very subtle ticking clock in the form of the battery indicator beeps for the laser. Um, so the weapon will gradually run out of batteries over the course of the chapter and uh, then kind of be taken out of the out of the action. So um, I thought that was that, that was cool how like the, the battery beeps give us a sense of, of time and progress. Yeah. And it's actually one of two ticking clocks in this chapter because the other one is the arrival of the other Titans. Mm-hmm. But that is shrouded from us. And I think that's interesting, too. Right. Because she's so kind of swept up in um, in fighting that 
we get seen that Kenzie is sending her updates on the estimated arrival of the Titans, but we don't actually see that time. Like we don't. And I think that helps. It's a ticking clock that we can't see. So there is a ticking clock that we can see of the battery level, but there's another one that we can't see, which is when all the other Titans are going to arrive. And I think that juggling of tension there makes us more fun. I think you're right. So uh, Crystal showing up to support Victoria feels like such a moment of triumph to me. Yeah. And then Aunt Sarah arriving shortly after makes it all feel a little bit less like cleanly triumphant. <laughs> uh, but still their ability to banter in the situation feels like a kind of emotional win. Yeah. And I think it comes on the tail end of Victoria basically internally ranting about how much she hates Scotty. Um, and so like she's getting really, really down. She's feeling really, really hopeless. Um, she's angry she's the hatred is flowing through here. Like, like this is some kind of star war. Um, but then her sister and her aunt show up and we get banter (laughs) and, and for a brief second, we forget about the oppressive doom of the battle and the stakes of everything being so high. And we just get this fun banter. Um, and I think you're right that like aunt Sarah's, uh, inclusion here takes it down a notch because the, the text really emphasizes how like, clinical is not the right word but like professional and and like yeah she she's engaging in the conversation but is not engaging in the banter like a like a human would yeah yeah it's just those little indicators that she's not really 100 percent herself right and how each and every one of those like hits crystal hard yeah yeah um so the nemean titan victor finally shows up and makes just that that makes everything just that much more complicated uh, he's a whole different type of problem too, which I think completely stirs up all the variables. Like, like the instant we feel like we might possibly have a handle on the whole Scotty situation and, and Victoria kind of knows how to fight her, the capes kind of have a system for dealing with her. And now Victor shows up and you can't engage him in close range. Uh, he has this what much more defensive style. He's basically the opposite of Scotty in every way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Wildbo's having some fun here because he has Victoria call him cowardly. The, the lion, the cowardly lion, cowardly lion. Um, but but we do see that like like Scotty, the Nemean Titan is going directly for the civilians. He kind of runs around the fight and attacks the civilians right away. And Victoria gets pissed, mm-hmm. uh, understandably. But but she takes it out on Victor. She says, fuck you, Victor. You hurt so many people for selfish, ignorant reasons. And you became this just doing more of the same. Which is interesting because I think a couple chapters ago, I would have been like, hey, whoa, Victoria, like that's not Victor in there anymore. But after 18.Z, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like there's probably some of him in there, too. Like based on based on what we've seen from some of the other Titans, like that seems fair to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. We've also learned that we can kind of trust Victoria's internal uh, verbal slips so like the fact that she thinks of him as victor might even suggest that there is some victor in there um yeah, yeah. although scribe thinks there's not so <laughs> we'll see yeah and i mean this this whole thing brings back an ongoing question about this right because we we've now been in the head of three titan three titans uh that definitely have pieces of the human left inside of them we know that fume hood is the same way um and and dauntless and Dauntless. But we also uh, know about um, Oberon. They, they say that there's not any. Yeah. Yeah. Which so. is interesting, right? Because like it, it seemed at first that the normal reaction was there's nothing left of the human inside. And these were the exceptions. But 
then we as we've added to the list of there's still some some bits of humanity left inside these people it seems like that's the norm um mm-hmm. so i don't i don't know what to make of this what is victor still in there uh what is his relationship with his shard i don't know yeah i don't know and I, and it makes me wonder if we're going to find out or if it's just we're just meant to take to, to just understand that it's complicated and it's not just a monster it's got it's got vestiges of victor left in there yeah but but uh, these and this I did write it in the notes. So, yes, Victor is a Contessa Titan, um, as is uh, the stranger, I believe we're told. And what is the other one that comes? The Ophion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is also a Contessa, a Contessa buddy. Yeah. So just the worst. This, is, this is when you can like assume that that this was Contessa's step one. Right. Mm-hmm. That this was as as part of her like we don't want things to crack yet so let's do something to, to temporarily stop that mm-hmm. so oh maybe true i didn't it. think about that. that that's really interesting yeah okay <laughs> um yeah so even when it seems like at least they can hold the line against the man ophion shows up <laughs> along with a trio of just extremely gigantic minions yeah and i i love i love how this is structured because every moment our heroes think they've got a handle or an edge in the fight, something else happens. Um, Scotty's there. And then the Nemean Titan shows up, then the Ophian Titan. And I think the stranger shows up at the exact same time. So it's just like, it just keeps building on top of each other. Every time you feel like, okay, we maybe got this. Nope. And then that's when Victoria announces this is actual hell. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great moment of just like, oh my God, how can things get any worse? And then they get worse. I love it. So the, the three Dallin slash Pelhams have a bit of a philosophical debate as they react to the increasingly awful situation. Victoria is frustrated and feels that they've already failed in a sense by allowing any casualties at all to occur. Sarah thinks one should try to be realistic in their goals and focuses on setting and achieving such realistic goals. Victoria counters with Carol's maxim that the goal should be to deny the enemy their objective. So I, I think this is a really fascinating conversation and, and I find myself like just agreeing with everyone <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's a weird place to be. Like I certainly like the nobility of Victoria saying like death is unacceptable and I'm not going to call anything a success that results in death because that uh, cheapens and, and takes away the responsibility I have for those deaths. But also, like she said it herself when she was giving the speech and right after, like people are going to die. She knows this is a fact, but it's just the way she frames uh, responsibility and success and those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I almost feel like they're talking past each other a bit, too, because like sure. you can have a, you can have a goal of of doing thing A while keeping the opponent from doing thing B like like that's yeah. it's allowed to have complex multi-part goals but but i think i think this is the kind of thing that happens especially like in a family where people are more invested in like winning the argument than yeah. than like having the the nuanced uh take um I, I also think you can allow yourself to feel good about preventing more death than than there was right mm-hmm. like like yes like i don't think it removes responsibility for you to say okay we we did a good job of stopping more people from dying um that doesn't mean like that you're being you're being okay with the people that did die. I don't think it removes that, but in Victoria's mind, it, it has to. Any any 
like any saying we we any saying of success when someone died in the, her mind right now is is cheapening that person's sacrifice. I feel like it's a recipe for becoming like jaded and hollowed out to never yeah. allow yourself to feel good about like it reminds me of um Love Lost actually where like she, she kind of got ground down by her job because she didn't really let herself feel um like it was a win she 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 always felt like there there was yeah, it was it was just terrible. Everything was terrible, and 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 she's cleaning up people's messes and never really able to stop these bad things from happening. Yeah, I mean, it's also what led to Glory Girl becoming increasingly more destructive and violent. True. Um. So. Yeah. So, um, as the stranger encroaches, it it starts driving people to suicide at the edge of the battle, and Victoria responds by <laughs> firing blindly into the area where it might be. Um, notably, she finds <laughs> that she can't even aim at certain areas. Um, this sounds familiar. Um, and, and I mean, just to say it out loud, isn't it actually kind of weird that Vicky isn't just immediately going, oh, it's, it's blindside, blindside's the Titan. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's just a lot of stuff going on right now. Like I would not be surprised if like we see Victoria in a post fight briefing that is like, Hey, I think the, the stranger Titans blindside, Um, but maybe in the moment, like he hasn't been around that much. Yeah. I'm I'm always hilariously wrong with my assumptions anyway, so it, it'll be interesting when it turns out to not be Blindside at all. My other um my other thought was like when Blindside went Titan, it just kinda went ahead and erased everyone's memory of Blindside ever existing. <laughs> That'd be really funny. So uh yeah, but I think we'll find out eventually one way yeah. or another, probably. Yeah. This is the moment though where I think um what we were talking about earlier comes back where Victoria is having trouble seeing and asks Kenzie for night vision. And I, I like this moment because it's established that aunt Sarah has better eyes than she does. And mm-hmm. like, she's looking into the distance and seeing something and like covering her mouth in horror. And Victoria's like, what, what is going on? <laughs> it's like, Oh, capes are dying. And I think this is part of the suicide stuff that's happening, right? Like this is the, the stranger Titans yes. effect um, that, that, that aunt Sarah is seeing here. Um, but, the, but yeah, then Kenzie gives her the night vision that, that, specifically says the darks becoming darker the brights becoming brighter outlines were highlighted um and i just like i think that's it's great it's like a great double-edged sword right where you can see where you can focus on the brights being brighter but at the same time the bad things get look worse the good things look better um i I just i just like the the duality of that everything is more extreme yep (laughs) and down it's (laughs) <laughs> it's too perfect yeah her, her her very vision is influenced so that everything looks extreme to her which is yep. exactly what emotions do to you yeah that's perfect so uh at least when ophion's minions show up it actually distracts scotty from fighting the capes which is nice uh yeah. it's it's quite clearly established that probably the only thing saving the humans at this point is that the titans are still spending a lot of their time fighting each other and not you know the humans there we go contessa good confirmed Yep. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then we get the best uh, the best line. I'll be back for you, gun. I thought <laughs> it's very normal. Just talking to your gun. You I, love that gun. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Why not? We didn't we didn't talk about the part where her gun runs out of battery and she's just like, can anyone throw this? At yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that. I love that part so much. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, so Victoria flies down into the crack, notices that rain is on the other side of the crystal um scotty is still attacking even inside the crystal uh, e- even in the crystal dimension she's capable of teleporting into there i guess 
So as the chapter ends, the people are all confronted with images of capes and and apparently some of the humans present at their worst moments. Yeah, let's talk about this for a long time, because I think this is really, really important, right? Because what we see here, I, I copy pasted it and I don't want to read it all, but images of me wearing a glory girl costume, hurting a man in workers clothes, smacking him into a wall hard images of a young adolescent rain hurling a Molotov at an old house, an image of me punting a dumpster into a man, an image of rain spitting into a scared girl's face before adjusting his mask. Um, and we see that like everyone, yeah, it's other people are seeing images as well, but everyone is seeing these things and being affected by these things. And I think this is really, really important because this is people seeing all sides of capes mm-hmm. include, including some of the ugliest. Side. I mean, like in this moment, we're only seeing the uglier sides of them. Um, but there is a possibility as we saw the last time our, our, heroes went into the dream room you saw them at their worst as well you saw like them at at uh, at their lowest you saw them suffering the most like what they had to go through what drove them to become capes in the first place and so there's two reads of this right there's a read that like humanity is going to now look at these people and see how terrible they are um we have rain here we have victoria here these are two people that have done bad things in the past and now those things are being exposed to all these people who volunteered to die because of the words of that person i love the idea that you've that you've kind of picked out of, of this chapter of of the brights brighter and the darks darker yeah and you know that's that's what their little costume dealie does right like it makes it makes it look like there's a light shining on her um we're getting this idea that like she looks super awesome. She looks even more awesome than usual as she's bathed in, in ethereal light that isn't actually there carrying this gun and defending them. And then they're seeing her at her worst at the same time. And yeah. it's basically just taking the extremes and juxtaposing them. And uh, I, I wonder what we're doing with that. I kind of, I want to like stretch and try to make some connection to the word infrared. I can't really infrared is, is light beyond, um, beyond the the uh, human capability to perceive in in the red direction which means it manifests as heat i don't know mm-hmm. what else to say about it at this point it's 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 you could say it's heat with no light um yeah yeah i don't know how um, to connect that to this thing though <laughs> yeah i think it might be a little too early in the mm-hmm. arc to start making those connections but i think that's something absolutely to be aware of there and and i agree with you i mean i i the, the optimist in me wants to see this as a moment of mutual understanding right like especially since there are going to be some humans here who are going through the same thing right like uh, it says here a bystander who looked shocked by the image's appearance was depicted in his own blurry scene kicking a dog that didn't move out of his way fast enough and so this is a guy who victoria called a hero a chapter ago two chapters ago um, who has volunteered to come uh try to help save the world who potentially will die and he kicked a dog that's awful. Yeah. Um, and it's almost as if this can be this moment of, look, the one thing we all have in common is we've done some shitty stuff in our lives, but we've also done some great stuff. Look, we're here right now doing it. And and so uh, the, the optimist in me wants to read this as a moment of connection, of understanding, of mutual understanding between these two sides in this fight. Um, the pessimist in me says, oh, look how t- terrible the capes are. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with what Wildbo's been doing throughout this story of having there be people who are trying to do good but have done terrible things. And yeah. this idea of like, is the idea of redemption coherent? 
um, or, or are people just complicated or some other thing or something between those things? I don't know. Um, yeah, but yeah. it's definitely, I would say a major theme of the story actually. Yeah. And I think, I think we, we end this chapter on this thing that basically declares this is what we're going to be dealing with maybe for the, the next chapter, the next couple chapters. I don't know, but this idea of let's look at these people and let's, let's, exist in a place where we see each other at our absolute worst. Yeah. Um, and, and there's no, there's no hiding it. Like that's, they're all down here. They're all down in the trenches of the shard world. And there's no hiding your past from anyone anymore because it's all there on display in front of you. Yeah. So I think to wrap up, I want to talk for just a second about what an unusual first chapter of an arc this is. We mentioned it earlier a little bit, but um, you know, it, it's not that we never just continue on with the action in mm-hmm. an arc opener, but it is very unusual and I think in this case, it's simply because this is the final rush to the end. Things are too intense for really any amount of sitting back and setting the table and and talking. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to speculate on how close to the end of the book proper we are, but this this is definitely an an, an escalation of pace. Um, things are moving fast. We're we're not. We're not doing our, our typical um, rising Recover, action yeah. moment. And, and uh, yeah, uh, and you're right. This is not the fr- this is not the only time this has happened in either of these books, but it normally does happen in these big, huge battles. Like in, in some of the bigger, larger fights, we usually have an arc that begins right after the end of the other one um, because we're still kind of in the thick of things. Yeah. And this is like in the thickest of things. Um, so I do I do agree that this is kind of drawing a line towards climax mm-hmm. um and it's exciting because i like what's happening <laughs> i me really too. like what's happening me too all right uh let's get on to the discussion question the question from last week was what is ward about uh zero one zg says fashion obviously obviously uh <laughs> i don't know i mean yes definitely right <laughs> Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, but like that concept explored in a million directions and in, in every possible di- dimension. Yeah, sure. See, <laughs> see, zero thought that was just a joke answer and we weren't going to take it seriously, but we did. We did. Uh, Wanson says, for me, it's about recognizing your mistakes, owning up to them and working your ass off to correct them. Clean up the fallout as far as possible and prepare to do better next time. Apologize to the people you wronged, but don't let it define you. You're more than the person who fucked up. Keep working on new, different stuff as well. Make new connections. Sometimes you can't get back to things how they were or how they should be. In that case, you need to recognize this too and settle for an imperfect solution instead of jeopardizing everything else by reaching for some impossible perfection. Yeah, I'd like that a whole lot. Um, I think I, it's I, a lot of different ways of exploring that general idea of uh, of growth. Yeah, I think I think it touches on the ideas of of what it is to be human in this ambiguous and complicated world. And and I, I love that answer quite a lot, mm-hmm. actually. I'm I'm already I'm already happy, and that's only the first answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sarah Penguin lists like four hundred things, which is exactly what we told them not to do. <laughs> Uh, Just kidding, Sarah. We love you. Let's zoom in on one of their answers, which was helpfulness. Ward seems to focus a lot on the desire to help and how helping others can help with recovery. Victoria regularly throws herself into danger out of a desire to help others. In the flashback, we see her at her worst. In chapter one, she is not doing well, but much better than the flashback after helping with the patrol. 
She has had more strides in recovery as she helps break through. While Ashley helps Kinsey, it seems that Ashley benefits from the, from that helping more than Kinsey does. Capricorn only starts getting better when they stop fighting and start helping each other. The reason Fume Hood retained any humanity while going Titan is that she wanted to help the major malfunctions. Helping can backfire, though. Kinsey will help others at the point of not eating or sleeping. Sveta uses helping to avoid her own problems and tries to fix her relationship with food and sex instead of communication. Um... The, the navigators got carved up after having their helpfulness used to lure them into a trap. Shortcut hates Victoria because she, chole, she stole his chance to help. Wow, that's really interesting. I never really thought about it being that complicated and, and kind of woven throughout the story in that many uh, ways. Yeah, and, and what I like about that answer is what I like about this book is that, you know, the themes are never clear cut like mm-hmm. like I, I absolutely agree that one of the things that Wabo is talking about is is helpfulness and, and community and how people help each other but I love that the book is complicated enough where it doesn't just say this is objectively good helping people it always works out yeah. <laughs> there are people that will take advantage of that there are people that go too far with it um, there th- every everything every behavior every action um, can have a bad side to it as well and the book is not gonna just like shove those under the under the carpet and pretend like those aren't there it, it actually looks at them head on and it's a, it's it's why the themes of the story i think are so fun to kind of pick apart and explore because they very rarely offer you just a simple yes this is what the book is saying this is unquestionably the correct thing to do always and i think that's just realistic like in in real life sure. we never we never get the answer of like and and that was the moral of all that stuff that happened it, it's <laughs> right. always just it, it's it no, no, no one thing is the thing that you should be doing more of or less of. It's, it's, it's always a balance and it's always complicated. And, and yeah. I love that that manifests in the story. And I still think that the book has a conceit and a, and a conclusion to these things. Like I, I do think the book feels a certain way about some of these things, but it is willing to explore the areas in which those answers aren't quite as neat and tidy. Yeah. Or you could say that, that maybe Wildo has in his mind some, some thesis about helpfulness, about the concept of helpfulness, but, but that thesis involves it being complex and ambiguous and, and not clear cut. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have Killer Kino, who says, if I was writing a book report, identity and trauma are what I'd pick as the two central themes. Identity is covered in many scopes and applications from generalized personal identity to identity within family to to identity within society. We even cover both contemporary identity issues and hypothetical identity shattering events. Trauma is presented globally, socially and of course, personally. The gamut here is also run from real issues to fictional circumstances and they used a bunch of examples. I wasn't going to go through and read them all, but they, for each and every one of those things, they pulled out examples in the book. And I, I like that identity and trauma. Absolutely. And I think like Ward was, or worm was about trauma as well, but Ward is, is exploring it in a, in a very different way. As I think some of our answers here are going to get into in really interesting ways. I feel like, um, <clears throat> Ward may be more about trauma than worm was in, in a, in a certain sense. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know if I can substantiate that right here and right now, but I, I, I think that like so many of the interludes are just here's the trauma, here's what this person's dealing with, and and how they are continuing to reel from that trauma. Yeah. So the funny thing is, I I was struggling to come up with a way of like verbalizing how you are exactly right, but as soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so I I agree with you, but yeah, I think it's challenging to explain exactly how. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dalai Jaya says 
Taking up the story uh, two years after the end of the world, Ward immediately positions itself as being concerned with false stability as opposed to picking up the pieces. Almost from the start, we see people settled into a semblance of their pre-gold morning lives. There are cell phones, coffee shops, car wrecks, and cops and robbers. Yet, it all feels off, like something isn't quite right. The shape is there, but it's hollow. Things are missing. Looking deeper into the narrative, we can see that everyone is in some form of denial. From the kids learning about five pounds of gun to Ashley proclaiming her intent to be a villain while still in therapy, there is an obvious disconnect with reality. Objectively speaking, Jessica and her sense of professional ethics really contribute to everything that happens. She values her, her oath above the potential dangers presented by Chris, literally failing in her duty to warn. Reading between the lines, th this hesitancy on her part jumps out as the entire world being gun-shy in the wake of Capri. This is really cool because this is not something I ever really noticed like consciously, but but it, it happens again and again where like we see stuff like they're they're not really they're not really uh, build like they overbuild in some areas. Right. Yeah. And then it causes a problem later. Like there's all these manifestations of the idea that like everyone's trying so hard, you know, they're watching their their morning their morning news shows and everything, trying so hard to pretend everything is back to normal and paper over the disaster as fast as possible. But the the fault lines that led to it happening are still there. And in fact, uh, haven't even really been slowed down. So, yeah, I mean, that like going even more broad, that's the book, right? That yeah. This idea that like this terrible, awful thing happened. And the next day, everyone just said, OK, let's get back to normal. But we haven't solved the underlying problem. Um, and that's what's happening now is those those little cracks that we tried to pave over are are collapsing. And mm -hmm. that's what that is exactly what the, the, the state of the world is right now. I remember when this book started, I've stared at that first sentence about about the, 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 the them having a chance to start over and coloring it gold of all things. And being like, I know this is going to turn out in retrospect to be the key of the whole book, but I just can't understand <laughs> how. Um, and I think this is kind of part of what that is, is this this idea that everyone was so eager to start over that they started over with an unsound foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they didn't solve any of the problems. Yeah. Like, go, going back to recovery, this is just another another r r facet of that idea that like you didn't actually get better. You just you just wanted you just wanted it to be normal again. Mm -hmm. And you did no, no one, no one put in the steps necessary for that. They just wanted to get their coffee. They just wanted mm -hmm. to, to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't, you can't go back to normal. You've all suffered this great, horrible thing. Yeah. Uh, Next up, we have Fridian, who says Ward is about fascism, how a well-meaning good person like Victoria can become an authoritarian and do awful things in the name of keeping the peace and doing what's best for society. See the anti-parahuman society, Kenzie's mass surveillance and the prison world, for example, of this. Ward is also about personhood. It asks us what makes someone a person and what makes two people different from one another. A massive number of storylines play into this. Swansong and Damsel, Chris and Labrat, different facets of people in the crystal realm, multiple people having the same physical experiences through being linked by Darlene. And then lastly, Ward is about rape culture and the importance of believing in victims. Victoria's experience were disbelieved and downplayed and her abuse continued to get worse and harm more people. Uh, I like that answer. I don't know how far Victoria has gone into the authoritarian tendencies. I mean, I, I definitely think that is a possible conclusion for her. I don't think she's quite there yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that anytime you're in a, a life and death situation, uh, the the things that happen are going to look like that and they may indeed be uh, manifestations of authoritarian tendencies but they may just be you trying to not die 
mm-hmm. it's hard to distinguish in this particular case, but I, I still think it's interesting. Like, yeah, I think yeah. I think that there's always there's always a potential for authoritarian uh, themes when you're dealing with any kind of law enforcement, because the temptation for law enforcement will always be in the direction of harsher, um, give us more power so we can do a better job type yeah. type, type reasoning. Absolutely. Yeah. Hero of Old Iron says, I'm going to take this from the angle of my best boy, Rain. The story is about guilt, responsibility, and growth. It's about looking into the mirror, realizing that the person looking back has done some truly terrible things and trying to find some way to live with it, uh, with that reality. Uh, now, maybe you had an excuse. All, all, the, all, all members of Breakthrough had an excuse. Uh, Rain certainly did in The Fallen. Maybe you felt like you were forced to do it, but what have, uh, sorry, what would have happened to him if he didn't obey Seer, for example? Um, they basically go on to to point out that like Rain's arc is this perfect exploration of of these ideas of guilt, responsibility, and growth. Um, there are other characters who who touch upon it, I think, but um, I think his might be the cleanest. That they make a case that it is anyway. I think this is a good post. It's pretty long though. That's why I'm kind of summarizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think they, they they finish saying Rain is the is breakthrough's backbone, strong, versatile, reliable, and sometimes down but never out. He's a true and blue. Uh, he's as true and blue a hero as the rest of them and only made more so by how much he had to fight through to get there. I love yeah. It. I love it a lot. And I am now kicking myself because I was rereading the chapters a couple hours before we started. And as I was reading, I was like, make sure Scott, you mentioned on the show, uh, about all what rain is doing in the background of, of, uh, these chapters. And then I forgot to do that because mm-hmm. like rain is basically in these moments, like we, we open 18.10 with rain meditating and prepping for this, incredibly scary thing he's about to have to go through. Um, and Victoria wishes him luck and he's like, no, I'd rather you have the luck. Mm -hmm. And it's like, like he's just like, he's just been there Mm -hmm. and he's just doing the work. And that's just like what, what he's been doing this entire time. He's just been there doing the work, stepping up, being handling it. Mm -hmm. Um, and just constantly. And so much so that like, you kind of like, I feel like I haven't been paying enough attention to him. And I don't think Victoria has been paying enough attention to him either because like, it's just consistent and reliable and there. Um, but man, I love him. I love him so much. Yeah. The idea that he's the backbone is great. Cause he doesn't, he, even when he's struggling, he, he, he just, he just deals with it. And then he asks if you're okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah he, he's yeah. great. Just the idea that like, he's about to go back into the dream room. Um, he has no idea what's going to happen. No idea if, if like presumably there's going to be another scary ass monster in there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to have to find a way to get around it, to get through to the, the computer again. Um, and they're not sure what all that means. And yet you, I think you need the luck, Victoria, what you're doing out there is going to be more important, mm-hmm. man. What a guy. Yeah. Uh, Next up, we have Fetishist, who says, This might feel overly obvious, but Ward is about heroism and the toll it takes to try to live as a hero, the psychology required to make heroic choices, and the different meanings people ascribe to the idea of doing what's right. Sure, Warren was about that too, but I'd argue Ward is more concerned with it. It's absolutely about trauma, recovery, community, personal development, and similar, but it's important to those themes... But it's important that those themes are explored through the lens of people who want to be heroes, who are choosing that path. It's also about how one might tie oneself in knots, either trying to be one or trying to pretend you are one, and how one might surprise oneself by becoming one. I like that answer a lot. I, I, I think that is absolutely true that there's a reason why we are talking about these themes from the perspective of someone who is kind of inherently heroic and, and wants to be such. 
Yeah, I, I I was really happy when this story started and we were we were going to be with Victoria because I was just like, oh, OK, like like all the, like it was fun exploring the 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 gray morality of being a villain. And I'm really happy that we are doing this very different thing where Victoria is really not uh, not about the gray morality. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, but it, that doesn't make her any less complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Manukos says, as you said on the podcast, I think it is very clear that Ward is about Kenzie sealing a puppy. We did say that. Good joke, but it is because Kenzie stealing a puppy is, a, is symbolic of how difficult and hard recovery is and how you can make mistakes and slip up and feel like you're not making any progress at all when you screw up, even though you knew it was wrong and did it anyway, because you just can't help yourself sometimes. It's, it's hard. It's fucking hard. Yeah. And then you cause everybody to be mad at each other and have to do like emergency. Yeah. It's, it's a, yeah. Uh, yeah. Love it. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Cog says Ward is about asking what is the new normal and about how characters survive and negotiate a variety of new paradigms for the world and their personal lives. The story's tagline is after all, the rules have changed and there are constant beats of a previous status quo being upended and a new one appearing. The story starts with the golden city and a semblance of 21st century American life being restored. Is that the new normal? Is the city's eminent destruction and dispersal of the population into the countryside just how things are? Is it normal that the mayor is a formal supervillain? That heroes are exiling people to other dimensions because their existing prison broke? What about the Titans? Um, and he goes on to talk about how the Heaven's Ark uh, really drove that home, that feeling home for them when uh, when uh, with the whole Cradle March plotline um, and Victoria and company were more or less in a Cape Western movie. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I like I like that a lot because um, it kind of ties into the the earlier response from the person talking about how we just were so interested in going back to this. And it, it, it go to me, it goes back to this, this one idea of that. They never even named the city, you know, like, mm -hmm. so it's this, it's this rush to return to the status quo, but with the caution of making anything permanent. Um, yeah. It, it almost hints that they never really believed it. Yeah. 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 I love that. I, 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 I agree. Like, I feel like, Every week I'm like, oh, we got to I feel like I want to talk about the fact that they haven't named the city yet and it just never really comes up. Yeah. Uh, Captain Rhino says, I'm sure there's been a discussion on what is recovery, which addressed this much more thoroughly. But I think Ward is not primarily about recovery because some things can never be recovered. They can only be reconstructed into something similar and different continuity and discontinuity. Sometimes that is a net gain. Sometimes it is a net loss. Victoria will never recover her old self completely. That Victoria Dallin is gone. She has been reconstructed into someone similar but different. There is a continuity and there is a discontinuity. And Terry's is, is a composite of all the parts of her past selves reconstructed into something hopefully greater. Sveta has been reconstructed entirely into someone new. The person she once was is lost. And even if she could go back, does anyone think that she would now? For her reconstruction has proven to be far better than, than recovery. The Bedites built the city in an attempt to recover what they had lost. Biter said in Worm's epilogue that fast food signaled a return to civilization. But all of that's gone now. The city is being handed over to the Titans and the cracks in reality. If concentrations of powers continue to be dangerous, then humanity will have to construct a new form of civilization. This is still up in the air, so I think the eventual fate of the city will be the proof or disproof of this thesis. Cool. I like that. I think mm -hmm. I think that recovery is one of those things that is not clean cut. It's it's, um, you know, 
if, if, if you if you say the theme is recovery, what you really mean is the theme is exploring the idea of what recovery is. Yeah. Yeah. And how much of it is possible. And I love like reconstruction is such a perfect word because it, it really ties into the as, as they mentioned, this exploration of building who you are from from the facets of your demolished self. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what Victoria did with all these bits and pieces of herself. That's what she's telling, uh, Sveta to do. That's kind of what, what the city as a whole did. And and what I love in a lot of these answers, Matt, is they keep going back to the city. As you said, the city is what we started with at the beginning. The city is kind of like this, this overarching, uh, symbol of humanity and, and what are they going to do and how are they going to survive this? The survival of the city is the survival of humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. Next up, we have Megafire who says Ward is about saying Ward is about recovery is a little trite at this point, because I think it's been said by everyone by now. True. But I think an important element of this that hasn't been touched on quite as much is facing your trauma. And I think this is the answer that's going to get us to what we were talking about before, like, how do we talk about, uh, how do we talk about how Ward is more about trauma than worm? I think this is the answer here to me. I've talked before about how Ward seems to be circling around the main issue, the main trauma experienced by everyone in this world. Gold morning. Ward has taken a look at the big players in worm, the ones we knew as major villains, but the Taylor saw as resources to add to her toolbox in her conflicts or big names that stayed in the background, but has taken this look mostly from the perspective of their victims. The fallen went from being a, a bit of flavor to two villains to generally to a generally terrifying cult seen from the perspective of one of the people in it. Heartbreaker was entirely in the background in worm seen only as a little seen only a little through the way he fucked up Alec and cherish, but in ward we see him and the horrible ways he treats his children a lot more directly. The slaughterhouse nine were always taken seriously as a threat and always despicable villains, but we never quite got to see the perspective of someone truly at their mercy until we got Ashley's perspective. Cauldron and their crimes against humanity have been grappled with much more directly through the perspective of Sveta. Notably, Cauldron has not become less complicated as a result, in part because we also saw it from Contessa's perspective, whose role in Cauldron is also really complicated. Um, and they go on to talk about Amy a little bit here. But I, I, I like this a lot, like this idea of it's not just about trauma. It's about like facing that trauma head on um, and, and really, really looking into it and exploring that. And I agree that Taylor, like by her very nature, like, I'm trying to come up with a way of saying this so it doesn't sound mean to Taylor, but like she was a lot less concerned with a a lot of the other people's issues. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, this may be a non sequitur from what you said, but I I think it's striking that we never really got the scene of her trigger event, like a hundred quadrillion words and we never really got the scene of it of it actually happening to her maybe yeah, we just got her recalling it just from re- just from recollection of it later but like we never got a flashback to it. we 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 got more of a you know we we got it we at least got like a, a bunch of rumination and a dream vision from victoria but the point is that victoria or rather taylor wasn't really one for dwelling on that event sure, she, yeah. I, I think she was actually unaware of the degree to which it continued to influence her mm-hmm yeah, I think you're right. Whereas this story is more about people so dominated by their trauma that they're unable to push it away the way she did. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, uh, we have answer from Lost Man 138, um, the past and how it defines the present in some ways. The story takes place in the aftermath of Gold Morning and with humanity still reeling from science rampage, trying to find its way back to normal, or at least something resembling normal. The members of Breakthrough all have rough pasts. 
Um, they kind of list all those. We're familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> however, as Sveta said about unre- uncovering more of her past, she uncovered more demons. Uh, the state of the world that Victoria finds herself in is one due to the machinations of one organization, Cauldron, the leader of the fallen Cauldron Cape, teacher who was trying to, sorry, teacher who was trying to take over the Shard Network, Cauldron Cape. The people who run the city are ex-Cauldron, and the person who, es- who escalated the situation that led the current apocalypse founder of Cauldron. Post-morning humanity issues uh, run long before Scion's rampage and deep, just like Breakthrough. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting idea that, that like you, you can track a lot of this stuff back to Cauldron and, and more, more generally back to the past, back to things that yeah. happened before, um, before um, the current status quo. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep going back to Victoria's very early line where she just she says, I'm not about forgive and forget. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like there's, there's this there's this inherent conflict in the story between this idea of moving on from the past and and forgiving and forgetting. Um, and we've talked about already today the ways in which some people tried to move on so quickly that they didn't actually deal with it. But some people are refusing to 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 stop looking at it um and i think that's an inherent conflict in a lot of our characters and we're gonna have to see a resolution of that in some way Mm -hmm. yep uh finally we have farm fresh hornets who says i have to say i don't know what ward is about anymore but i'm okay with waiting until the end before i try to make another stab at it they go on to say i don't think i've known what it's about since the teacher raid especially with regards to ashley's death i thought it was about recovery but unless the book's thesis on the subject is sometimes you recover but all that time and energy were for nothing because you get yourself killed and then your best friend and adoptive daughter spiral in in your absence that's then going off that the text is as it exists now i don't know that it's really necessarily a story about how people can recover from trauma and get back to being okay um yeah i mean this is I think is a very understandable response to that, right? Because like this is kind of what happens when you try to figure out what a book is about before it has reached its conclusion, because there are moments where you're like, Oh really? <laughs> but I, I do think that this is going somewhere. And, and I think I continue to think that Ashley's death is this really powerful moment in the story um, where, you know, she figuratively and literally ascends to this this higher place um in 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 doing what she did and um i I do not i do not think the end like message of the story is like uh, sometimes it's all for nothing Mm -hmm. yeah um i i agree with you um it is really interesting how it is totally true that uh you know if for example it wasn't, I think I might've said this a million years ago, like it wasn't obvious that worm was going to be a tragedy until the end. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's definitely not clear to me whether Ward is going to be, um, whether it's going to be a tragedy or something else. Yeah. Um, and then that will influence in a, in a kind of a retroactive way, what these, what these themes actually were at, at root. Yeah. I mean, everyone says it's about the journey, not the destination. And I agree with that, but the endings of books are pretty important. <laughs> yeah. The, the conceit of what the story is doing is fairly important to what the overall themes end up being. And, and I think the reason why you wanted to ask this question now, I think you said it when you did it is because we're in this very unique situation right now where, where we have ideas about what it's about, but we don't know for sure until the book reaches its conclusion. And it's going to be fun to, to kind of go back and look at these ideas and then see how off or on base we were. 
Yeah, because you know, it's really hard to remember how you felt about a story before you finished it after yeah. you've after you now know how what the end is. Yeah, absolutely. So there's not going to be a discussion question for next week because next week is going to be another um, three chapter uh, episode, yep. and that's just a lot of stuff for us to talk about, and that's and then and then cover the discussion questions. Yeah. Um, but then you know we'll we'll be back on track subsequent to next week. Um, for now, that's all we've got for you on We've Got Ward. Uh, you are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. Uh, you can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or at Twitter at gotwormpod. Uh, I'm going to do some live reads now that we've recorded this episode. I don't know when, though, because I'm not going to do all three of them on Sunday. That's too much. So I'll, I'll figure that out. And let you know on Twitter. Follow Got Worm Pod on Twitter. So yeah. you'll know that. Uh, my personal Twitter is at ScottDaily85, and Matt's is at Mordinamail. And I think both Matt and I's New Year's resolution is um, to to not do Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you know, just just the internet in general. Well, um, I just like, it's, it's 2020. It's a brand new decade. And I got on Twitter, and I, I, saw, I saw more takes that i thought were bad and i was like oh nothing's changed <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely continuing my resolution from last year to just mercilessly mute and, and block anyone who displeases me the slightest amount because that made me a lot happier over the last year that's smart that's smart if you're not already subscribed to we've got ward we recommend you do so and never miss an episode you can find us on itunes stitcher youtube google play anywhere else you can listen to podcasts and as always, you can find this and all the other shows we do over at our website, doofmedia.com. This, that's where you can find uh, information on our book club, which meets every month, including this Friday, to discuss Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. So head on over to doofmedia.com, click on the book club, and you'll find out when that's going to be. Talk about uh, that book. Yep, that's right, Scott. And if any of our shows are are your cup of tea and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash doofmedia. You'll be supporting um, us and also media MD and, and, um, and do the right thing. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever other amount you wish. Supporting us on Patreon gives you access to, to a lot of cool bonuses at different tiers. And, and um, of course, the, also the ability to vote in our fan art and costume contest and the do the right thing contest, mm -hmm. uh, doof the right thing contest, excuse yeah. me. Um, also really fun hangout sessions, uh, with the whole doof crew access to live streams of our recording sessions like this one that we are doing right now at this moment. And of course the discord chat. Yeah. And we did a, a fun game of Jackbox, uh, at, uh, for our doof and chill session last month. Um, those are always fun. So I think that's the, what level is that? That's the $5 level. Something like that. <laughs> so we, we do fun stuff. We have a bunch of bonus content. We we wrote a bunch of Christmas articles last month. Uh, this is a whole bunch of cool stuff. Just patreon.com slash Steve media. Yeah, we try to We try to give you guys content for your money because we really appreciate uh, you guys supporting us. Yeah. And always, you know, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash Wildbo because the cool stuff you get for donating to him is that he gets to live and write for us. <laughs> Donate to Wild Boar, he will die. <laughs> That's what you just said. That's what I just said. <laughs> Special thanks. But, but, but seriously. <laughs> but seriously, though. Special thanks to new patrons this week. Badoofs Scott A. and Luke H. Uh, at the $2 level. And Doof Troop member at the $10 level, Adam R.
Yeah, thank you guys so much. I mean, we we were we were joking around, but it it really means the world to us that you guys support us. We all all of it goes back. We're about to launch a new show, so we've been doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff on that, um, and that all costs money. And Matt's working on a cool thing that we can't talk about yet, but I'm just gonna tease you with it because that's what I like to do. Um, and all your money really helps us do this stuff and keep it going. And uh, it's just it's exciting. It's a new year. It is. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. Uh, you can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, if there's other ones that do those things, and leaving us a rating and a review. Uh, of course, no reviews to read this week, but uh, you guys just click that five star. Click it. Yeah, we love it. it it's it's food. We, we eat the stars. Um, that's all we've got for you this week. We'll be back next week to cover the next three chapters in Arc 19 Infrared. We eat the stars, Infrared. Man. We eat the stars. I, I do. I don't know about you. It's weird.